Mark, what do you think makes you different than the thousands of other screenwriters who came to L.A.? During your time here, what do you think made it different for you? Well, I think I was very, very lucky in the fact that um, I was enthusiastic about science fiction from when I was a small boy. And science fiction, unlike a lot of other genres, the fans became the writers. And so they had a sense of wanting to pay it forward. So when I noticed that the same writers were writing for Star Trek and Outer Limits and Twilight Zone, as were writing the short stories and books that I was reading, and the novels, Ray Bradbury, Harlan Ellison, Theodore Sturgeon, Richard Matheson, uh, etc., I uh, could then go to science fiction conventions when I was a teenager, and I sought these wonderful people out, and they became mentors and friends. That, that helped enormously. And, uh, and also, I just had such a passion for writing. I had, such a, I, I had a sense of calling from a very early age. And I understood that, uh, because of Rod Serling, because of so many of these writers that I admired, that you could aim high. You didn't have to blend in. You just had to be clear uh, what you were sharing with the world. And Ray, Ray Bradbury was a mentor of mine for over 10 years. I'd go over to his house once a month for over 10 years uh, toward the end of his life. And Ray always used to say, look inward. Don't look out for your material, look inward. And that doesn't mean that you can't write about things that are different from your life. It just means that you find your passions and the, your true self inward, and then you put that out to the world. And, uh, and so I, I had extremely good teachers in that way because uh, I think some writers out of fear feel that they have to imitate others or write down to their audience. I've never felt that. I'm the same as my audience. And if I come across an idea or a story or characters or whatever that uh, excites me, um, usually my audience will be excited too by what I'm doing. And uh, I trust my audience. I don't, I, I, they're, they're, um, I, I feel I'm, I'm with my family when, uh, when I'm talking to <laughs> all the weirdos. Weirdos are good things. I yeah. Like, I like weirdos. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. How did you know that you could actually get something made? I mean, there's a lot of people who love a certain genre, but they dabble in it, or they're on the sort of the outside, the outer limits, yes. so to speak. How did you know, though, that you could get something made and, and eventually be successful at it? Well, I didn't, I didn't have a, 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 in terms of knowing that I would be successful, I didn't know that. It was, uh, there are basically two people who are responsible for my career more than anyone, which is my wife, Elaine, who I met when I was 20. We, we got married when I was 21. Now we've been together 45 years and married 44. And we write and produce and direct together. And uh, my friend Michael Reeves, who was writing for television and brought me into animation when I was uh, like 22, 23 years old. So uh, I started by knowing, by the time I got out of art school, my, my degrees in painting, sculpture, and graphic arts from UCLA. And because I always knew I was going to be an artist or a writer. But by the time I went through college and then went to the Clarion Writers Workshop uh, and sold my first short story, I knew I was going to be a writer. And uh, so I thought, well, how do you learn how to be a writer in television? And there was really no, there was no graduate school in that at the time. We're talking the late 70s. And uh, so I thought, well, I'll write a book about one of the greatest television shows ever made uh, to learn how to make great television. And uh, so that's why, what gave me the idea to, to do The Twilight Zone Companion. It was two years after Rod Serling's death. And had Rod not died prematurely, terribly sadly at age 50, uh, I wouldn't have embarked upon that book because if anyone should have written a book about The Twilight Zone, it would have been Rod. But since he wasn't uh, with us anymore, I thought, well, let me follow this and see where it leads. Now, Elaine um, was invaluable because 
I started writing the book, interviewing over 100 people who, who had worked on the show, and it started getting rejected when I started submitting it. It was rejected by 25 publishers over a two-year period. And probably if I would, if I'd been left to my own devices, I would have probably quit. And Elaine said, no, 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 just keep going. And we, but we also looked at what wasn't working, which was the agent I had wasn't the right agent. She wasn't, uh, she wasn't seeing opportunity to close the deal. And so we, I switched agents to someone who was young and hungry and she sold it almost immediately to one of the publishers who had already rejected it, but a different editor who had grown up with The Twilight Zone and understood why people would want to read about that. And, and the other thing I think that was responsible for my success was sometimes people are so dogged about this is all I'll do. Like I mean, you know, Elaine and I have mentored a lot of people and one person they said, well, I'm, I want to act in a Steven Spielberg movie. And we said, well, you know, there's a lot of other things being cast. You could, you could try for other things. No, no, Steven, it's gotta be Steven Spielberg. And, I, so, and we said, you know, well, he might only do one movie every few years and, and it might not have a role that's right for you. You're limiting your possibilities. So I knew I wanted to be in television and I knew that I wanted to be writing for shows like Star Trek. But when my friend Michael Reeves was writing animation and he said, would you like to come in and collaborate with me? I saw that as, that got me into television and then I could write spec um, live action features and so forth and that moved me then into live action TV shows. But that's how I ended up writing for Smurfs and He-Man and Super Friends and, and all those shows. And, uh, but I always brought my A game to everything I did. So I wasn't writing down at all. Someone once asked me when I was writing for um, animation, they said, do you write for the child in the audience? And I said, no, I write for the child in myself. And so I would go to that place that would be delighted by the jokes or by the stories, and then just write as truthfully as I possibly could. And, uh, and that worked. And uh, so I've, I've, I'm very proud of the work I did in animation, as well as the work I've done in live action. I am here to provide a service. And if I can open a door for someone where they understand that it's not as hard as people make it sound, you know, that's the trick of it. You know, it's like, that's why I wrote Green Lighting Yourself, so people would know that they could be the engine that drives their career. They don't have to give up power. They don't have to wait for the studios and the networks or the publishing companies even to see their value because thanks to the internet, thanks to the fact we all have cameras in our pockets, thanks to the fact we can edit on, um, on a Mac or a PC, there's no reason not to just make the thing you wanna make. Give it all of your heart and soul and put it out to the world. That's your audience and that's how you build a body of work. You don't have to wait. There's no reason to. Can you succeed in Hollywood if you're not a workaholic? Yes, you can succeed in Hollywood if you're not a workaholic, but you do have to have a work ethic. And it's interesting in, in Greenlighting Yourself in the new book, I talk about having a life. And I deliberately put it after the chapter on building from success and recovering from failure. And I pointed, I pointed out in the book that whether you're succeeding or whether you're failing, it's important to have a life separate from that. Because the separate, the having people who love you, family, friends, travel, doing things separate from the work, it gives you a breadth of experience, but it also gives you a life. It gives you something that grounds you because you're not just someone running after the brass ring. And uh, so, Actually, I, I know writers who have a very balanced life between family <clears throat> and the work, and I think that's, that's a good idea. I don't think one should work all the time because you run out of uh, things to draw upon creatively, but you also run out of, I mean, you just go crazy. You, you, the isolation, 
Hollywood can drive people crazy simply because they get so materialistic, they get so success-oriented, driven, that they forget why they got involved in the first place. You know, I've, I've known people who've wanted to become, who've wanted to become writers because they wanted to get rich, and I've never seen it work. Um, maybe someone has succeeded at that, but the people that I've seen succeed are the ones who just love the work, and they love what they're creating, and they are just so grateful for the opportunity. And, uh, you know, it's just there's something, like for instance, I just came from a studio that I have that's filled with uh, spaceship sets. <laughs> and, uh, and, you know, we're building an alien spaceship, we're building this uh, hospital in a, on a, sta a space station, and to be just, and we're building eight foot tall creatures, and just to be in that world, and be able to share that world with, with everyone is, um, is great. But Elaine and I try and stop working in the early evening. We work at least five days a week, and sometimes we'll work weekends, but we try not to. But we um, <clears throat> will work, and then in the evening for an hour or two, we'll just relax and watch a movie or a TV show or something, or go for a walk, or, you know, we, we and we own dogs, and dogs force you to like, get off the sofa, stop typing, you know, go take them for a walk. And, and that helps let the air in a bit. Uh, you can't, I don't think you can be successful if you don't have a work ethic. And also, I think you have to stand by your word. The more you stand by your, your word, the more you have a work ethic, the more you have um, at least craft, if not. I don't tend to use the word talent much because I've seen a lot of people who had talent who got nowhere. Whereas if you have passion and craft and a work ethic and, and you... Um, I mean, you know, the reason people support me in so many ways is because if I say I'm going to do something, I do it. And it doesn't matter if it's easy or if it's hard. If it's hard, then it's hard. It's, I'm not going to stop. I'm not going to turn back. I have, I have work to do. <laughs> you know, I get on with it. <laughs> and my mantra to myself um, when things are difficult is, uh, you know, I'm made of iron and nothing will stop me. And there are times, for instance, when I did the Star Trek episode with George Takei, it was a very grueling shoot. And, uh, and I said, I'm made of iron and nothing will stop me. And I had to use that. But we got to the finish line and that got nominated for the Hugo and the Nebula. And I'm very, very proud of that episode still. And that was for Christina Moses's first TV role. We cast her out of the blue and uh, she's now starring on A Million Little Things on ABC. So we saw what her amazing talent was right from the beginning. Well, you talked about talent, and, and talent is very long in this yes. in this town. But but what if someone's sort of the pendulum swings more toward a hedonistic personality type? Well, I try not to hang out with assholes. Uh, yes. well, they could be a really nice hedonist. Yeah. They know, but I mean, I, I think you have to treat your body like a car that you might own, and you want to take care of it. You want to make sure that you aren't burning the candle at both ends. You know, so many people burn out. And, you know, drugs, alcohol, you know, self-destructive behaviors, gambling, all that, I, it's just not sustainable in the long run because it's just too hard on, on your mind and your body. You know, it's, uh, you know, I, 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 I gravitate toward people who have a family life. Most of the people I work with are married. They have, many of them have kids. Um, I want someone who's stable. I don't want someone where I don't know if they're going to show up. And uh, so I, I, I can make the choice um, of who I work with. And I've been very lucky in terms of the actors I've worked with, even when I was at the studios uh, and the networks, um, I never had a crazy person. <laughs> I always had people who were there to do the job. 
and they appreciated the fact that I was really putting putting everything I could on the page and they would get these scripts and they would love what I was writing because it gave them something to act some emotional through line and uh, and you know so quality work gets you quality actors gets you quality composers it get there's a ripple effect if you're if you're doing your your best work but you can't be thinking about oh I've got this party to go to I've got this no it's um I mean, that doesn't mean you can't have fun, you can't go on vacation, you can't go water skiing or whatever. You know, and, uh, but, but at the end of the day, you have to be reliable. And that means you have to like, look ahead. You cannot be such an impulse monster that you know, it's Monday and you don't know where you're supposed to be. You know? <laughs> so you <laughs> can't wander the streets. But you know, so, uh, so that's, yeah. But of course, in, you know, in the new book, I talk about if you if you're thrown together with someone like that, here's how you can deal with it. Because I, I had a friend who was an actress, and she was cast on a TV show, huge hit show, and the um, the the star of the show was drinking all day and being very very abusive to people and very insulting. And she just but she recognized to not engage to do her work. She was there to do her work, and she did it. And ironically, at the end of the day, the actor came up and said, "You were great." And so she had succeeded. I think often what we have to do is have our eye on the ball in terms of what we are there to accomplish. It's not about winning every single battle. It's not about going toe-to-toe -to -toe with everyone. It's not an alpha dog contest. It's about what am I trying to accomplish. And so if you say, okay, well, uh, I'm here to write a great script and turn it into a great TV show, or I'm here to give a great performance, whatever it is, you have to be clear on it. But obviously, the more that you take power, the less you're going to be frustrated by other people who are not there for the same purpose. So that's why I have my own studio now. That's why I, I raise money the way I do because, um, you know, it's fun to be in charge because then they then there's no one around to. I mean, if if anyone's going to wreck it, it'll be me. But then that's my fault. You know, it's like a failing of whatever. But um, but it's so it's so cool to work with great people and create work that that has meaning. You know, I just, I, I couldn't be happier. Is it possible for writers starting out today to have the same type of TV writing career that you had? In terms of writers nowadays having the same kind of career I had, uh, no, they, could, they can't really because television has changed so, so much. Well, when I uh, started out, I, I started writing in the late 70s and still am going strong today. I've been very lucky. Um, back then, most shows... I had freelance slots. So in other words, for instance, when I was a producer on Sliders, we had a 22 episode order for that season and 11 of those would be freelance slots. So every day we were taking pitches from writers and we knew we'd have to buy 11 scripts. Now we might write, rewrite those extensively because we knew the show day in and day out in a way that the freelancers wouldn't necessarily, but that might be that, first, that person's first sale. It might get them into the industry. It gave so many people chances to get their foot in the door get a start. And, and I actually ended up writing for so many different shows because sometimes I'd be on staff, um, but other times I'd just be a freelancer coming in and pitching. And so it allowed me also to write for a number of different shows, much more so than if I was on staff because you know usually you're uh, exclusive to that show or you might be able to write a feature when you're on hiatus. But, but on any, any given year, any given day, I would be multitasking. I got very, very good at multitasking. Uh, so I might be, well, like for instance, when I was a producer on Sliders, I was writing my own scripts, helping with every phase of the writing on everyone else's scripts. 
And, um, but I was also, I sold to Deep, Deep Space Nine that year and uh, Far Beyond the Stars. I had sold a trilogy to HarperCollins. So I was uh, starting to write the first novel with Barbara Hambly and outlining the second one with Maya Bonhoff. And, and I'd also been hired to write all the outlines for Animorphs and lay out that show and write several scripts for that show. So uh, for instance, so I would get into my office at um, Universal at six in the morning, write an entire outline for Animorphs and then by 10, I'd be done with that. I'd, I'd have faxed it to uh, New York, and uh, then the sliders guys would come in, and I'd do my sliders job all day. And then on the weekend, I might be working on on the novel, so uh, or on the outline for the Deep Space Nine episodes. So it was uh, it was a great way to work because you know how to uh, to to, to um, go from one thing to another to another without uh, losing quality. That's that's the hugely important thing. You don't you don't ever want to be just providing fodder. You don't, you don't want to just be writing. My friend Frank Spotnitz, who created Man in the High Castle and ran The X-Files, uh, he says, uh, good enough is never good enough. And I, I agree with that 100%. He also says, you, you should, every time you should aim for the bleachers because you might at least get a single. You know? And, it's, and, and I, I share the, that view, which is give it your best. I mean, you should just, everything you've got should go into everything you do. And, and if it's not good enough, work, work harder. You know, but, and sometimes you're not going to write the great American novel or the great American screenplay. You know, uh, one of my friends who's uh, in Ohio and calls me quite often, and he said, well, you know that episode of whatever show it was, Forever Night or whatever, the, uh, that show that was on last week wasn't up to your normal standard. Why was that? And I said, well, you know, you know how like when you're in school and sometimes you really try your best, but you get a B on a test or a C plus or whatever, it's sort of like that, you know, you, you know, it just didn't come together. And, but that, but it wasn't for lack of trying, you know, and so, uh, but that's part of it. And, um, and then all, but, but again, but in terms of possibilities for the writers now, they're much greater. For instance, when I started, <clears throat> there were three networks and PBS. And so they had, and they were 24 seven stations. They weren't. Uh, you couldn't watch a show when you wanted to. There was no home video. And uh, so there were only a certain number of shows they could make just because of the hours in a day. So it limited how many writers could get work and it limited the what kind of work you could get because it, if the show wasn't approved by the network, you couldn't, there was nothing you could do. And if you wanted to write something and shoot it on your own, it would cost millions of dollars minimally. <clears throat> and And that was very, very difficult to raise that money. Now, uh, there's over 500 scripted comedy and drama series on the air on all the networks and VOD platforms. And, and so there's an enormous amount more slots for writers. Additionally, uh, even though there isn't freelance per se, there still is freelance in animation, but not in live action uh, by and large. But also people can make their own web series. They can make their own podcast. There's so many ways to get a following, to get an audience. And... Um, and, and I, I say to everyone, I wouldn't go back to any other uh, period in my life. I'm, I'm happiest of all now because I have such, I have such great autonomy. Uh, my audience has given me over two and a half million dollars uh, to open my own studio and make Space Command. And, uh, and now I'm raising even more money. It turned out I had a knack. And so I don't have to ask permission from anyone. I just come up with an idea. I write it. I cast it. I shoot it. I put it out to my, my audience around the world. And... Uh, that doesn't mean that the studios and networks and VOD platforms can't be my partners. They can, but they aren't the deciding factor of what I do in terms of what I make, I'm, in terms of creatively. And, uh, and that's a pure joy.
So going back to the 70s and, and being a freelancer, yeah. the, the, completely different as mm -hmm. to the the tone of your day, what you're working on. It wasn't, well, it wasn't so much different as to what I'm working on because I was always working on shows that I had a passion for. So whether it was Sliders or even Friday the 13th, the series, which I story edited, uh, I would always find the, the core of it, the emotional core that would uh, resonate with me. It always had to be something that I could cue into, otherwise I wouldn't write it. But and I always worked with people who I liked and who liked me. And uh, I was very lucky in that way. And the, and the studio executives and network executives we dealt with, fortunately, uh, were um, very supportive and very smart. And so I didn't find them intrusive. There are the other kind of executives and, and you wanna try and avoid those. In, in, in Greenlighting Yourself, I have a, a section on working with stupid people. And my first piece of advice is if you can avoid it, Avoid it. <laughs> but if you have to work with someone who's in the food chain, they might be above you in the food chain, here's how you can do it and not have the work be ruined and not have, um, and not be fired. And so I go into some uh, experiences from my career where I'm able to walk people through that. And, um, but again, it's, it wasn't so much um, content that was different. It was simply, it's almost like there's a difference between performing a play if you're an actor to an audience versus auditioning. Because auditioning, you need someone to approve you in order to do your work creatively. Whereas when you're in a play performing for the audience, that's the direct relationship. So the more that I can be in the direct relationship creatively, the conversations between me and the world, me and my audience, the better. And really what started me on this journey of opening my own studio and doing crowdfunding and selling investment shares in Space Command and so forth was simply that so many of my friends who were the greatest writers in television had written projects that were great and should have become hit series and the network or the studio cut them off at script or cut them off at pilot. The audience never saw those great shows. And I thought, you know, in, in books, once a novelist is relatively successful, then he can create a body of work like Stephen King, for instance, or name any writer that you love. And, and so they have an authorial voice and a shape to their career that follows their enthusiasms and what they want to talk about at any given time. But that's not true with television writers. With television writers, for the most part, they're constantly stymied from doing their, the projects they're most enthusiastic about or the projects that might even be their best work because um, the studio and the networks have different objectives, which are primarily financial objectives. And, I'm, and again, they have a right to, to do that if they're writing the checks, but now that we can go directly to our audience and raise money that way, the fact that we can now shoot for so much less because uh, digital is so much less expensive, um, we, can, we can change the rules to, in, to our favor. And uh, you know, it used to be when, when young people would, like young directors or writers would say, well, I'm, they're not letting me get, have my dream. And I would say, well, who's not letting you have your dream? And they said, well, the networks or the studios or whatever. And back when it cost millions of dollars to make a movie, you'd say, okay, well, then that makes sense. They are being stymied. But now, since you know, they have a camera in their pocket, I don't, I don't accept that excuse anymore. If someone says they're not letting me have my dream, I'll say you are um, you're using an excuse to avoid doing the work. Because the work is get a camera, get some people together, get the best, best actors you can find, make it happen one way or another, make it happen. And um, a great minute is better than a mediocre two hours of material. But if people love it, you'll start to build your audience. That starts to build a career. How did fear of success almost ruin your screenwriting career? And when you hear that from these these other writers, yes. do you hear fear of success in their voice or it's 
it, it's asking for permission. I think there's always a counterweight between fear of success and fear of failure uh, in everyone's heart in one way or another in different measures. Uh, one is always afraid of exposure. One is always afraid of screwing it up, you know? And, and ultimately you have to be willing to face that and get past it and get over it and get around it. You, your job is to get your work done, your creative work. And with all of my mentors, whether it's Rod Serling or Ray Bradbury or Guillermo, Guillermo del Toro, with whom I wrote a book uh, not long ago, I seek out mentors who are brilliant at what they do. And then one of my key questions always is, when you encounter failure or when you encounter rejection, what do you do? And because what I'm looking for are strategies that I can apply to my own life and my own career that keep me moving forward. And, um, and it's been incredibly invaluable because you, you find that the higher up someone goes as a writer or a director or whatever, or an actor, uh, their fear is still there, but they have coping mechanisms where the period that they're in um, breakdown is shorter and shorter and shorter. So in other words, uh, for instance, uh, when Guillermo del Toro was preparing to film uh, his dream project, The Mountains of Madness, based on an H.P. Lovecraft novel, uh, they pulled the plug on it, Universal did, because they thought it would be too expensive and R-rated and so forth. And, and Guillermo had other, other irons in the fire and he immediately jumped over to Pacific Rim and he was off and running. So that didn't mean he didn't feel terrible and maybe had a weekend of feeling very sorry for himself, but he got into motion and he was already preparing for that eventuality, eventuality in advance so that he wouldn't be stopped. And um, it's very important. You know, I think, don't be afraid of success because success is very nice. You know, when you write a book or, or that's successful or a TV show that people talk about for decades or um, you get a big payday, uh, those things are fine, they're fine. I think people are often afraid of scrutiny. They're often afraid of, well, I'm a fraud and I won't be able to handle success. But success is an extremely amorphous thing. You, first of all, you can define what success means to you. For instance, at this point in my life, I don't need to have the million dollar payday. You know, I, I need to keep working creatively and getting my work out to an audience, but money is not at all what rules me. I've made choices. We still live in an apartment. We own our two cars outright. You know, it's, <clears throat> I've made choices that allow my life to be very um, free in that way. But, um, but for me, success is very, very clear. And I'm glad that I've been successful you know, in, I mean, I, I, you know, I can look at my career and say, well, look, clearly I've succeeded because I've created work that people are still talking about, you know, 40 years after I did it. And also I've earned significant money uh, writing for the studios and the networks. Until Space Command, I, I'd only written for the studios and the networks and the major publishers. I'd never um, done any independent film projects. And then, you know, because of this roundtable I mentor, I started hearing about crowdfunding and uh, I thought, well, Let's see if I can raise money. It turned out I could. <laughs> so, even though Rod Serling was considered a, a, a dashingly handsome, mm. confident man, yes. angry at times, maybe. Do you think he had a touch of fear of success? Did he mask it with the, sort of the the this pretty boy, I, you know, facade? I don't think he was afraid of success. He was extremely charismatic, extremely confident, without being arrogant. But he felt that he had failed in his career, which is terribly sad. The last interview he gave before he died at age 50 in, in 1975, uh, the interviewer said, do you think you've been successful? Do you think you've, you've written work that will stand the test of time? And he said, the, the good writing like fine wine has to age well with time. He said, I think my work has been momentarily um, adequate. 
which is astonishing. And it's so sad that he didn't live till now because he would have seen that he had created one of the greatest masterpieces of television and he had inspired an entire generation of showrunners. I mean, <clears throat> every major showrunner in drama, Rod is their hero. He's the idol. He's the guy who sort of led the way. As, <clears throat> and um, it's really, really sad that he didn't get to, uh, to know that. You know, so I'm mm -hmm. sure he would have been amazed and extremely gratified. Sure, many, many other, uh, Philip K. Dick, same, mm. same thing. Philip K. Dick was a different case because he was, um, at least he got to see, Philip K. Dick at least got to see the footage from Blade Runner. He knew that somebody was getting, um, getting what he was doing. And so he, um, and he, my God, he created a huge amount of work. I mean, he wrote, I think he wrote 12 novels in a year, plus short stories. I mean, it's like, uh, let's hear from amphetamines, you know, so. <laughs> Yes, that, that, I think that did help fuel him. But also, yes. uh, he had his own, what did he call the hovel? Which mm. was his sort yes. of grungy little... Yeah, he was a, he was a troubled man. Him. It was very funny. He was a troubled man, and there was all this whole thing of how drugs drove him crazy, and at the end he was raving and, and insane and all that stuff. And, and I had dinner not long ago with Greg Benford, who's a fairly conservative professor and also a science fiction writer. And I we got on the subject of Philip K. Dick, and he said, oh, no, no, Philip wasn't like that at all. He was very sweet, very funny. His mind was perfectly together, and he knew him at, you know, throughout the latter years of his life. And so I was very glad to hear that, because I think sometimes the media can get an impression of someone which isn't accurate. And Philip K. Dick was an amazing writer, and uh, I'm glad that, that he had friends who really saw who he was and valued that. What do you say to screenwriters mm -hmm. who say it's not their job to get the movie made, mm. it's simply their job to write the script, have an idea, and get that out there? Well, I, always, I when people tell me they want to write a script, I say to them, do you want to write a script or do you want to make a movie? Because they're two very different things. And uh, early in my career, I was friends with Charles Joffe, who was Woody Allen's agent and then his producer. And I said, Charlie, in film and TV, where's the power? He said, in television, it's the writer-producer hyphenate, ideally the writer-executive producer hyphenate, the showrunner. Uh, in films, it's generally the writer-director hyphenate, uh, sometimes a producer, but often the writer-director. And, and that told me where to go in my career. I went into television because writers run television. And so that meant that what I wrote would get made, what I wrote would get on the screen. Uh, I'd say 90, 95% of what I've written has been shot. And my friends who are screenwriters have lives of endlessly writing scripts for these other people who may or may not be uh, unstable, but most of their work doesn't get made. And that I know screenwriters who've worked for decades and none of their, they've earned a good living and none of their work has gotten shot. For me, that would be a useless life because my goal is to create a body of work that moves an audience, that entertains an audience, that is meaningful to them. and. Uh, so you have to know what, what you're trying to accomplish. So if a screenwriter wants to be a screenwriter, doesn't want to be a director, doesn't want to be a producer, then yes, they can write scripts, but those scripts may not sell, or if they sell, they may not get made the way you wanted them to get made, or you may get fired, or they may, be, they may sell and, be, and never get made. So yeah, if your goal is to make a living as a writer, there are a lot of different ways to do that, uh, or as an actor, or as a director, or as a producer. But the more you say, let's, chart a path that gets my work made and gets me an income, then that's a strategy that allows you to be much more effective. And, uh, and I'm not saying not to have a career as a screenwriter. I have friends who've made 
millions and millions of dollars uh, as uh, screenwriters, and they've had some great films made. Um, but you're a little more thrown to the, f the winds of fate in that direction. So, so one thing I would say to anybody who wants to be a screenwriter is uh, get, get mentors who are successful screenwriters because you must know what the rules are because they don't tell you what the rules are generally. And unless you know what the rules are, unless you know the secret language, you will endlessly be frustrated. And the secret language, it, we all learn it because in order to be successful, you have to know what, like when you're in a room pitching, you have to be able to read the room. And it's, it's very funny because I once, Elaine and I once went in and pitched something uh, with someone who was in fair, fairly uh, new to the business. And at the end of the meeting, he came out saying, well, um, why didn't you say this and this and this? And I said, because we were saying it, but just not in words. We knew, you know, the person I was pitching to knew that that was under everything we were saying. And, you know, and, and you also know what's a yes, what's a no, you know, where you have enthusiasm, where you don't. Um, there's, there's a lot of ways to read that stuff. And, and many of the lessons, many people are very frustrated because they think they're succeeding when they're not because people in Hollywood will act like they're enthusiastic. They'll love your script, they'll love your idea, and then suddenly they seem to blow hot and cold, you know. And it's because a lot of people want to be liked, but the moment you're out of their sight, they forget about you and it's on to the next thing. And so you can never trust their word. And um, so again, that's why you don't want to... A lot of people think that, well, they read the script and they really liked it. That's meaningless. It's like, did they buy it? No, uh, but, they, but they want me to come in again and pitch again. Okay, well, that's not bad. But again, it's sort of like they really liked it, but they didn't buy it. Or they, you know, they, when you go to an audition, an audition and they say, well, um, that was great, but, you know, thanks. But if they bring you back, yes, then you are making an impact. But you have to really look at what, at cause and effect. Because there are a lot of things that people feel are symbolic victories that are actually not moving them forward. And a real victory is, when something gets sold, when something gets made, when, you know, and when they hire you to do the next one. You, know, it's, you can build upon success. If you're consistently not succeeding, then you really have to look at what's not working and find out why it's not working. But again, you need to have people who will tell you the truth, but be supportive. No one has a right to say to anybody, you'll never make it. No one has the right to say to anybody, you don't have ability, you're not, you're not good enough. These are irrelevancies. The people who succeed in this business are the ones who are incredibly persistent. Uh, my friend Nicholas Meyer, who directed Wrath of Khan, he said, uh, the key to success in Hollywood is persistence with charm. <laughs> because you need the persistence to get where you're going, and the charm means that they won't get pissed off at you. <laughs> but, um, but again, I know so many people who think, it's like, well, I've written 10 scripts and none of them have sold. Well, you might try something that, you know, I mean, again, if, like, like often people come to my round table and they've made like 10 shorts or 15 shorts. And I say to them, stop making shorts, make a feature because you can't, you can't really make a living doing shorts as far as I know. But if you take several shorts and link them thematically, that can be put together into a feature. So you can do an ensemble film made up of shorts if they're linked by a character or a theme. Uh, or, or any number of things, or a location. And so start thinking that way because if a feature is too big to do in one gulp, you might over the course of a year be able to make three or four shorts, put them together as a feature, and bang, you're good to go. And so I, I think one really has to look at where one's headed. And I think the keys to succeeding are 
you have to write from the heart, learn your craft. So that means either, that doesn't mean go to, go to college necessarily in screenwriting, but it does mean read scripts, see why they work, see what works and what doesn't. Be in writers groups where you get feedback, but it has to be supportive. That doesn't mean it's not critical, but there's a lot of toxicity. You don't want um, toxic notes because they don't help you. They just put scars on your heart, you know, and uh, find mentors who do, who, who, whose work you love who have and who, who are authentic. Because again, as I've said before, there are two Hollywoods. There's a Hollywood of creepy, horrible people. And then there's a Hollywood of people who are doing the work they love. They stand by their word. They're good family people and, and they're good friends to, and they're, they're authentic. And that's the Hollywood you want to be part of. That's the Hollywood you yourself want to represent. Uh, you do not have to become a slime ball to make it in Hollywood. That is, there are many, many bad habits that people have. You do not have to A, become something you loathe, and B, I strongly urge people to avoid working with people they loathe. You will not just have one chance. I mean, if you're, if you really put your heart and soul and a work ethic into, the, into pursuing this, you'll find opportunities, you'll make opportunities. Um, you don't have to be the, at the whim of someone crazy, nor should you be. And, uh, but you also have to decide from the beginning if you need to be rich. Because if you need to be a millionaire, then yes, the studios and the networks are the, are the, the road to take if you can. If you don't need to be rich, well, then there's a million ways to earn money, writing books, writing scripts. You can make uh, films that, that earn, some money, earn some money back. You can have your own YouTube channel that brings in money from ad revenue. You, there's a lot of ways to, their Patreon accounts. I mean, I know people who are, who are, their art is being supported by their Patreon accounts. And, uh, you know, it's just, you, you, you need to talk to people who are succeeding in the way you want to succeed and say, you don't ask them for, help. You don't say get me an agent or, or, or open this door for me or, or introduce me to your friends. No. You ask advice and, and you say, how did you do this? Or what, what, when, you, when this happened, what did, what, what did you do? And, and sometimes they'll give you answers that you can apply and sometimes they'll give you answers that, that you can't apply. If you can't apply it, then keep asking the question of different successful people until you find the answer that you can apply. And, uh, and you know, but there, there are many different paths to success, and uh, and it's just, man, you know, Rod Serling used to say, I, when he when he would write scripts, he would say, "Is this the truth as I know it, or better yet, the truth as I feel it?" And that's words of wisdom. Let's take another scenario, and sure. that is someone's written what they think is an amazing script. Mm -hmm. It's been purchased, and too many hands got involved, and quote messed it up. Yes. And that happens often. In fact, I know some uh, writing team where they wrote a horror script that they were very proud of, and it got went through all these different writers, and they were very worried about that. And finally, the Writers Guild decided that they would have solo writing credit. But then when the movie came out, it was really terrible because of all the rewrites, and they were blamed <laughs> because theirs was the only name on it. And so, you know, that's where I say, if you're willing to take power, if you're willing to take responsibility, if you say, I'm going to write and produce and direct, <clears throat> that doesn't mean you do it alone. You're not a one-man band, but it means that you make sure that what you intended it to be is what it is. You know, because the moment you sell a script, then the moment you sell a script, you're at. You're no longer the boss. The, the moment you sell a script, you're no longer you no longer have power. Whoever bought it has power, and so 
It can be any number of things. Anything can happen to it. It's like putting Moses in the in the little reed basket and floating him down the Nile. You know, it's like, bye, kid. <laughs> I mean, will you become the, you know Moses or will you become Pharaoh or will you become like you know Joe who uh, you know, shines the statues? You know, it, it, you, there's you have no power over that anymore because you floated him away. That's like what people do with scripts. Um, and so you know, when I was a writer on staff, a writer, producer, story editor. Uh, one of the things I would say at the beginning of my job is I would say, my preference is that I not be rewritten by others. I will do as many drafts as it takes, but um, I prefer that my, my work is what gets to the audience. And because I was a hard worker and a good writer, um, my bosses honored that. And it was very rare that I would get rewritten. And uh, so, you know, it's, uh, you know, you, you, you work harder, but you... Um, have less sleepless nights, you know. So, uh, but again, it's it's so easy to shoot stuff now. It's so, you know. I mean, everywhere I turn, you know, I see people shooting short films or what or features or whatever t web series, TV shows. You know, it's science fiction never predicted that we would all have video cameras in our pockets, and there's so many benefits of that. And you know, fear can stop you. Laziness can stop you. You really have to say to yourself, if I have to work hard, it's worth it. Because I want, I want people to know what I'm doing. I want to share this with the world. It has to be that. Because otherwise, if you're going to be half-assed about something, then go work at McDonald's. You know, because if the fries are not the best fries ever made, then it's okay. But if you're going to make movies or TV shows, then then step up. There's only when, when you when you encounter resistance or adversity, you can either step back or you can, or you can step up. And that's it. That's, those are the only two choices. And uh, if you step back, you'll never know what would have happened if you had just really put your shoulder to the wheel. So, you know, I, my, my career has been made by hand, and I'm very proud of that. So you say with the fans, give them kind of what they want at the heart of the story, but then open the world wider. Is that sort of like, uh, you know, the saying, I know you better than you know yourself? Not Which is, exactly, because, okay. because as I said earlier, I'm, I'm the same as my audience. So if I'm enthusiastic about what I'm working on, if I find a story that interests me, I'll be able to tell a story I think that my audience will like. I never worry, first of all, I never talk down to them. I never worry about what will please them. I'm just trying to tell a story that I think is meaningful, that meaningful from a character standpoint. Um, for instance, and, and I'm always writing about things that I'm either um, um, you know, uh, love or frustrated about or want to comment on, but always it's through the characters. If the characters don't work, none of it works. And, um, and I'll give you an example. I came up with this idea called the Showrunners Network, where I'm creating six science fiction, horror, and fantasy series with six major showrunners. So it's Rock Neil Bannon who created Farscape and Defiance and Sequest and Alien Nation and Cult. He's now EP on Evil. Uh, another uh, partnership I have on another one of the shows is with Mark Ferguson and Hawk Ostby, who created and were showrunners on The Expanse and also did Iron Man and Children of Men. And, so it's, and then one of them is a Rod Serling project as well. And so, so when I started this project, I, I sat down and I wrote up 200 ideas for TV shows. And, uh, and so every day I'd come up with 10 ideas and just write them down, no censorship at all. And, uh, and so then Rock, Rock Neil Bannon and I went down that list and, and we saw what sparked for both of us. And something, a pet peeve of mine is, you know, 
now there's certain kinds of black stereotypes you can't have on TV or Latino stereotypes or you know uh, misogynistic things, right? But older actors either are playing coming down with cancer, coming down with dementia, or the funny grandpa or the funny grandma. And the seniors I know in my life and the seniors that I, I'm, well, I'm one of them now, um, these are vital, involved, engaged people. They are not those stereotypes. And so I was very frustrated with that. So I came up with an idea for a show called Sweet Haven. And ironically, I came up with this before the pandemic. And the basic notion is a, uh, a bioengineered disease gets out of hand and kills everyone in the world under 60. And so the people 60 and above have to figure out how to keep humanity going when they can't reproduce. And so it's a very fun idea. So Rock and I worked up the plot line and Elaine and I wrote the pilot script from the outline that Rock and I had worked up. And then we cast it and it has Robert Picardo from you know, you know, Star Trek Voyager and it's got Barbara Bain from Space 1999 and it's got Gates McFadden from Star Trek The Next Generation and Mike Harney from Orange is the New Black and on and on. It's this amazing, Veronica Cartwright from Alien and The Birds. You know, amazing, amazing cast. And, uh, and, and they play these very interesting and active characters. James Hong from Blade Runner is in it and Big Trouble Little in China. But they are not going to be playing the stereotypes. They're going to play, be playing fully rounded people in that world. And uh, so we've done two table reads via Zoom and we're going to shoot in the near future. So, um, but again, it's just, I was excited about that idea. And uh, the, the lovely thing when you can raise money is that you don't have to worry about, oh, is this something the networks would buy? I don't care, frankly. I mean, if they buy it, great. It makes my life easier. It gives me more money to play with. But um, I don't, at this stage of my life, I don't need approval. I need, uh, I need to be effective. So um, it's a very different energy. The wonderful thing is, as, if you've succeeded, as you get older, if you have uh, any kernel of wisdom, you stop competing with other people and you just realize you're here to find the truest expression of your heart that you can share with the world. And if people are moved by what you create, if they are um, made better in some way, even, you know, entertainment is, is, not, is not something to, uh, to d dismiss. It's an important thing. Um, you've succeeded, you know. I mean, every day I'm just trying to be uh, the best version of myself and be open to... I, I, I love collaboration. I, the actors are my collaborators, the, the designers are my collaborators, everyone. And, and even today when Elaine and I, you know, I, I direct with Elaine because Elaine is a better director than I am. And she's an actor's director. She, she, was, a train, she was an actress and a director off-Broadway. And I'm an okay director. I'm good visually. But, um, but when Elaine and I direct together, it's better. It's better. The work is better. The out, the, uh, what comes out is better. And, but what that allows me to do for instance, today we were looking at sets and getting ready to shoot some scenes. We're going to shoot in a few weeks. And Elaine was, her vision was different from mine in terms of how many people we have in this scene or how many extras or, and she wanted it fewer, fewer, tighter on the focus on the scene. And so I had to step back from what I was attached to, my way of doing it, my design in my head. I see the shots in my head and say, well, let's, let's, let's see what she has to say. Let's see what, where she's going with this. Let's see if it works. And that's a good, healthy, creative instinct because it lets in the possibility of something better. And, and because I'm not threatened at all, um, just grateful, I can do that. 
And so when you stop trying to be, there's, you're not in a race. You know, you're not trying to, to beat anybody else. You're just telling a story. You're just sharing something that you love with other people, you know? And uh, I was thinking about an interesting uh, analogy yesterday where uh, I heard someone talking about quilting. They made a quilt for survivors of the people who died in 9-11 and the family. And, and I thought, you know, it's funny. No one ever talks about pitching a quilt. You don't go and meet with a whole bunch of executives and say, hey, I have, a, I have an idea for a quilt. And you spend years just telling the idea of what you have, the idea you have for a quilt. And you never actually make a quilt. People would think you were out of your mind, right? The point of quilting is to make quilts and share them with others. But writers in, in TV and film, they think that that's an appropriate way to spend their, their lives, to endlessly be pitching. And well, I pitched this and it didn't sell. I pitched that and it didn't sell. It's like, why don't you just make it? Make the thing, you know, get, get people together, make, make the work. Then you're making the, 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 uh, the, the quilt. You're quilting. You're not talking about a quilt someday you may get to make. And, uh, you know, it's, it's so much more rewarding. And, uh, you know, it's, uh, I'm, you know, I'm just, uh, I've got my feet planted on the ground and, and, and my head in the clouds. <laughs> you know, it's like <laughs> Elaine keeps, keeps my feet on the ground. But, but there's such a lovely feeling of accomplishment when you do something and it comes out the way you want it and it goes out into the world and people love it. I mean, even on Mr. Sci-Fi, we put out the first hour of Space Command. It's been seen by millions of people and it got 97% thumbs up. Well, that's great. You know, it's great to have that. It means that, that people really liked it. And, and uh, you know, that, that helps make me uh, eager for the next day and eager for the next script. Were you always this way where you just wanted to do something that meant something to you that you were excited by and you were staying in your own metaphorical lane? No, no, I, I was at the beginning of my, of my career, you know, I was very, I, 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 there was no, no certainty that I would make it. And there was always this, the, I mean, I was very lucky because I, I started working, writing my first book at 21. I sold my first short story at 19 and I was writing for TV by the time I was 22 or 23. And over the next 20 years, the longest period in that entire 20 years that I was out of work was three months. And so I earned millions of dollars. I worked for all the major studios and networks, but, but there was always a sense that it could stop abruptly. And it actually did at one point. And I had to figure out a way of reinventing and a, re, a way of getting things going again. And fortunately, I was open to new ways of doing things. I, I, I was very open to that. And so that's allowed me to be where I am now. But, um, but I was not secure in it by any means. I was, I was driven by a creative vision and I loved writing other characters. I loved writing, whether it was Spock, Kirk, McCoy, or whether it was the characters in Friday the 13th series or even the Smurfs, whomever. It was really fun to write through those characters, write, you know, write what I wanted to say through those, those characters. You have to be, if I can hear the voice of a character, I can write him. You know, I have to be able to hear the voice. But, um, but I, I was never that secure. I was never that certain that everything was just gonna coast along. So I never felt like I could just like take my hands off the wheel. Um, going back, I probably would have done some things differently. Uh, my, my priority was always, I always felt that my obligation, cre my creative obligation was to my audience, but I often didn't take care of my bosses as well as I might have. You know, I wasn't, 
I wasn't a worker among workers in a way that I should have been. And it's fortunately, I still was able to create a body of work. But um, if, I, if I could go back and change one thing, I would be much more um, taking care of people in that way. And uh, I, I've never been a political animal. You know, I don't care about those things. And I have worked with people who were. Uh, and I've also lost jobs to people who were, like one friend of mine was recommending me to be a producer on this show that he was creating. And the producer who was running the show didn't hire me. And ultimately we found out what he was doing was he was only hiring people who were his troops so he could eventually fire my friend because he was a political animal. And, and but at the time I thought, oh, well, I somehow said something wrong in the interview. No, there was no way I was gonna get that job. But, and my friend ended up out on his ass, you know. And, uh, and that's when we realized what, what it was all about. But, um, but I think I could have taken care of people better, you know, and uh, I don't regret, in terms of the work, I don't regret any of the work I've done, but, but that's a lesson that would have been good to have learned sooner. Yeah. Some people aren't good at playing to politics. No, and I don't like kissing the ass of people who are mediocre. I mean, my, the one thing that really, you know, I was very open to people's, you know, humanity. But I could never stand anyone who just said, well, it doesn't have to be great. It doesn't have to be good. You know, it's like, we're just here to make sausage. I could, I could never, never, never stand that. It's like, well, you may be, but I'm not. I'm here to make something uh, wonderful that'll last the test of time, you know, stand the test of time. I, I'm, you know, I, I remember one time on Sliders, we were, uh, someone pitched a clone story. And I said to my boss, that story has been done on every other show, uh, every other science fiction show. And I, I was saying we shouldn't buy it. And he said, well, no, but it hasn't been done on our show. And I said, yes, but the audience isn't just watching our show. And the irony was that they bought that script and I had to rewrite it. You know, I, I rewrote it and made it as good as I could. And, but the thing was, it's like, had I been making the choice of what we bought or what we didn't buy, I wouldn't have bought that because it was cliche. Already then it was cliche. And I had to fight that cliche when I rewrote it to find some meaning in it. But, but it was a radically different philosophy of how to make television. Because I know from my own experience that a single hour of television can change someone's life forever, for the better. It's a huge responsibility and I never, never um, duck that responsibility. I'm very cognizant of it. Why do you like Star Trek better than Star Wars? The reason I like Star Trek better than Star Wars, there, there, there are actually two answers to that. I was 10 years old when Star Trek debuted and that was the perfect age for me to encounter that amazing universe. Uh, I, I sometimes joke that other people love heroin, I have Star Trek. You know, it was like, it was the thing I'd been waiting for and I just loved it and it's been hugely influential in my life. Star Wars, on the other hand, came out when I was in my early 20s. And so if I had been 13 years old when Star Wars came out, that would have been my Star Trek, you know. And, uh, but it was just, I was just a little too old for it to be, engage me in a way that would have really been hugely meaningful. I liked it. I thought it was a very, very good film. But, but also I, I like the Star Trek universe better. I think it has a lot more opportunity for a wide variety of stories. I think it's much more able to comment on issues of the moment. You know, Star Trek was deliberately written like Twilight Zone. These were, uh, Gene Roddenberry and Rod Serling were both men who had a lot to say about um, race, about social issues, about war. And, uh, and they said it. And, um, I think Star Wars is much more kind of a um, escapist entertainment. I think it comes from a very different place. But again, it's not for me to badmouth anything. I'm glad The Mandalorian has been successful. I think the more 
recent Star Wars films were problematical because they kind of didn't really know where they were going and would go two steps to the left, two steps to the right, and then, you know, walk into a wall. You know, so it was like, um, I feel very sad about that because um, they, it could have been better. And I, I think there's a problem when people decide that they're going to go deviate from what's expected and go in the exact opposite direction because often it doesn't create good art, it just creates... Um, chaos. So I think you have to be very careful of why you're doing, making certain creative choices because they, they, if they don't follow the emotional line, um, then you're not going to engage an audience. And also an audience that feels a, a very huge part of ownership yes. in the story and the characters. Yes. And that's, and that, but, but the funny thing is that the audience's ownership of something is a fine line to walk because you don't want to just give them what they want because then you're just reiterating the same old story. What you want is to give them emotionally something that's satisfying, but also opens the universe wider, does something that they haven't seen before, but in an emotionally satisfying way. So for instance, when I came up with the idea for Far Beyond the Stars for Deep Space Nine, it took us into the world of 1950s science fiction writers, which was something Star Trek had never done, but it showed the audience where we came from, why science fiction was important, why telling your truth is important, and it dealt with race in a very powerful way. And, um, and I was very, very glad that episode sold and got made, and people are still complimenting me on it 20 years later. People often don't know what they'll love until they see it, you know? And so it's like Star Wars. You know, if, if they tried to describe Star Wars before people saw it, I don't think it people would have understood what it was going to be because it sounded like crap. You know, this guy travels around with this big hairy creature and, you know, and then there's this guy in a mask and he's the villain and he's, you know, it would sound like, well, Jesus Christ. And, uh, you know, I want to be a Jedi Knight. It's like, oh God. But, but then you see it and what made Star Wars great was that it was a visualization of everything we'd been reading in science fiction for decades but had never been visualized that well. And so that's what set it apart. It wasn't that it was enormously original, it was that it was transferring to film what had been, we'd been reading about forever, but had never seen on film. And so that was what made it so exciting. You know, flying through the asteroid belt and all those wonderful things, the laser battles and you name it. It was, it was great fun. It's one of the most entertaining films ever made. So, yeah. What do you think the new Star Wars trilogy got wrong? <sighs> That's a hard one. It wasn't for lack of trying because I know J.J. Abrams and I know he loves Star Wars and I think he was afraid of, of blowing it, but, um, but he certainly put everything he had into it and he certainly did a lot of things right. I mean, the you know, building a full-size Millennium Falcon, for instance, but um, Star Wars has a very limited bag of tricks. It's like there's the good guys, the Jedi Knights, and the bad guys, the, the, the New Order or, or you know, the, the, the whatever, you know, the, the, it's like good guys versus bad guys and the bad guys have a weapon and they're going to blow something up and, you know, it's like, it's so difficult and because you, and then Mandalorian has expanded that a bit. They put a baby in it, Baby Yoda, but, um, uh, you know, it's just, there's so many ways. I mean, I thought, I thought J.J. was very clever with his version of Star Trek. A lot of people are down on that version, but I think he actually did a very good job of bringing it alive again and finding a way of reinventing it. Um, but with Star Wars, it's like, who are those people? Who is, who is a Kylo Ren? Who is, you know, I mean, he kills Harrison Ford. We're never going to forgive him for that. I mean, it's not like Darth Vader 
comes around at last and saves his son, which is a great story arc. It's like Kylo Ren put the lightsaber through Harrison Ford and he fell down and he was dead. You know, it's like, you know, you, it doesn't go somewhere that you want it to go. I don't care if Ray and Kylo Ren are drawn to each other. I don't know who these people are. You know, and, and they're, like, they're like less interesting versions of the characters that we started with, you know, with uh, Luke and Leia and Han. It's like you don't, I mean, like Poe Dameron, who is that guy? Why do we, I mean, I like the actors very much. I think the actors generally are extremely good, but it's just, you know, where, where are you going? You know, it, and, and then so it, and basically the first movie goes like this, then the second movie goes like that, and then they try and jam it back this way. It doesn't, it doesn't flow, it doesn't pay off well at all. It's just weak storytelling. And, uh, but, but again, when you view a property as a cash cow, then you just try to get your best people and try and hope that one out of every three or four will click. And because that keeps the franchise alive. And uh, it's a cynical way of looking at things and certainly not um, creative, but it's a machine, it's a factory. But um, that doesn't mean you can't get great Star Wars stories or great Star Trek stories or any of this stuff. Some, you know, it's like it, each time out, it's the luck of the draw. It's not that people are trying to create crap, they aren't. They're trying to really do a great job. And if it fails, it's, it's, it fails simply because what they tried or the direction they went didn't, didn't pay off. I think, you know, uh, Kevin Feige's done a great job with the Marvel Universe. He's, he's made a lot of great, great films. I'm not a huge fan of Marvel, but I recognize the artistry of what he's done. Um, you need someone at the, at, at the top of the food chain who really kind of has a vision, whether that's Rod Serling or Gene Roddenberry, whomever, you need that person who kind of keeps it on track. And it's hard to find those people, they're very rare. If you were put in charge of the Star Wars trilogy, mm -hmm. how would you have approached it? I, I would have uh, tried my best to make it good. <laughs> no, I mean, here's, here's my real feeling about Star Wars in terms of speaking as a, a creative artist. I think the, the structure of the first trilogy is very solid. And, uh, but the Ewoks, by the time you got to Return of the Jedi, George Lucas decided he was making films for children, not broad-based family entertainment. In other words, there's an adult, there's a certain adult quality to the first two films, that the third film with the Ewoks and all that. It's like, let's make some teddy bears. Let's, let's make some products. And then when he went to the prequels, he needed, you know, he was writing them. He needed a writer who was solid. He needed to bring in a strong writer because the, the basis of the story you know, the fact that, that the best Jedi becomes um, evil and, is, and then ultimately rises to the occasion to save his son, those first six films, that structure is really interesting, but the telling of it was very poor. And so, first of all, it was, as I say, they were films for children and they were kind of silly, but also the writing was really poor, the dialogue was really poor, the design stuff was great. My friend Ian McCaig designed Darth Maul, but, um, but, they, but also when, you, when you're thinking of it all as something that's going to help sell toys, then you're not thinking, oh, well look, here's this great character, Darth Maul. Why don't we give him personality and why don't we have him continue longer in the show, in the, you know, in the series of films? He was great. When Ray Park is fighting two guys off with, you know, with one lightsaber, you know, it's astonishing when he, I mean, he's great. And they cut him in two. I would have had him, you know, stuck back together and come on back, you know, it's, but, um, but I think there's a lot of weird vibes in, the, in those first three films. It's like, 
hey, look, you're a 10 year old kid and I'm gonna marry you in the next movie. It's like, holy cow, you're this babysitter and then you, you know, next thing you know, you're in bed with him. It's like, what? You know, it's, it just gives you a creepy feeling, you know. Um, and, and also, of course, that kid couldn't really um, act much. And, uh, you know, so it's just lost opportunity. What do you love about Star Trek Discovery? Doug Jones, I think, is terrific. <laughs> he's the lead in Space Command as well, or one of our one of our lead actors, and he's absolutely wonderful. Um, I think the production design is pretty amazing. I think the detail on sets and costumes is pretty amazing. The visual effects are good. I think it's it's gone kind of. I haven't watched all of the third season yet, but I felt the first couple of seasons were pretty weak in terms of uh, just characterization and and storyline. Um, you know, there's there's a lot of talent in that cast. But I, I would have I would have developed the characters very differently. I would have um, gone much deeper. I think that there's a very hit and miss quality to a number of the characters, where it's like, who are these people, and what what's the point of this story? And I think they're often talking about the emotion without actually dramatizing the emotion. And um, so I, you know, Strange New Worlds may be the Star Trek episode, the show we're, we're all waiting for. That's the one with Captain Pike. Um, the fun part about that is Captain Pike was the original captain and the first pilot that Gene Roddenberry did of Star Trek in 1964. And so if that, and now that's being greenlit as a show, so it's the longest period from when a show was pitched, when a pilot was made, to when they actually picked up the show. It's like 55 years or 60 years. That's pretty fun. How do you think Gene Roddenberry would have felt about Star Trek today? I think he would be, um, have very mixed feelings. I think he'd be very glad that it was still generating billions of dollars and still popular. I think I don't think he would necessarily be that fond of Star Trek Discovery um, or, or Picard simply because they are missing the opportunity of telling stories that have relevance to the current moment. You know, I think he was very, very much someone who wanted to make emotional points that related to the real world. And I think Star Trek Discovery and, Star and Picard have been they, they kind of have sort of, they're kind of drifting a little bit, I, you know, and uh, it, uh, so I don't think he'd necessarily like those shows particularly. But that's not for me to say. <laughs> you know, ask him when they clone him, you know. <laughs> What's your argument that Star Trek is better than Star Wars? Well, my argument is, I wouldn't say that Star Trek is better than Star Wars. I would just say that it's different. I, you know, it's, my friend Mel Gilden, says the golden age of science fiction is 13. <laughs> and that, of course, by that he means that when you're a 13 year old, that's when you find those things in science fiction that really speak to your heart and the universes you wanna live in. Uh, it's just for me, I remember when I was a kid, I recorded the original broadcasts of Star Trek on reel-to-reel -reel tape in case the show never aired again. And there were no VCRs, there was no way to, to you know, record the entire show where you could watch it. Um, but I remember that week after week after week, there were stories that I'd never seen anywhere before. They were astonishing. And they had such profound meaning for my life. You know, I, I remember sitting on the edge of forever where they had Kirk and Spock and McCoy go back to the 30s. And Kirk falls in love with this uh, woman who runs a soup kitchen. And ultimately he finds out that in order for the time, um, flow of time to turn out correctly, she has to die. And so he, literally allows her to be hit by a truck. He throws her under a truck. And every TV show I'd ever seen before that, the hero saved the girl. It was just a given. And in this one, 
he's responsible for the death of the girl. And, and the message was, sometime in your life, there'll be something you know is the right thing to do, but it'll break your heart. But because it's the right thing to do, you have to do it. And I was profoundly changed by that one episode that Harlan Ellison wrote. And, um, and, I, and, and so Star Trek had a deep, deep formative influence on me. And whereas I can't say that Luke or Leia or Obi-Wan or any of those characters, as much as I like them, uh, changed me in any way, particularly other than entertaining me for a few hours. So, um, so I'm not, I think if someone thinks that Star Wars is better than Star Trek, more power to them. I, I think it's fine for anyone to have any opinion, basically, as long as it doesn't hurt anyone. You know, I think compassion has to be what rules us. And it's, it's so liberating when you don't need to be right. You know, when you say, this is just my opinion, if you have a different opinion, it's fine. That does, of course, that doesn't mean racism or misogyny or any of those things. You have to speak out against things that are really hurting people. But most opinions are just people having opinions. You know, is Star Wars better than Star Trek? I don't know, not for me, but for other people, sure, it's fine. Like when J.J. Abrams loves Star, Star Wars, you know, I mean, you know, I'm sure that he feels really bad that he wasn't able to, uh, to do everything he wanted to do with it, you know, so luck of the draw. It reminds me a little bit of the, the Keith Richards biography mm -hmm. where he talked about a lot of these jazz enthusiasts and yes. there were two different types. Mm -hmm. There were the ones yeah. that were sort of schooled uh, in the bars and, and had learned to play yes. by ear and then there were others that had these theories yeah. and they would argue it. And, yeah. and nah. the film world feels like that at yes. times. Yes, well I have, I have very little patience with theorists. You know, it's funny, uh, you know, I, I think of the Twilight Zone Companion as an oral history of the Twilight Zone. I, uh, was very lucky that all all the writers, directors, producers, actors were alive with very few exceptions. I mean, Rod Serling was gone, one of the other writers, Charles Beaumont was gone, but most everyone else was alive. And so I was able to get the direct story from the people who made these shows, who wrote them and directed and produced them and the cinematographer and so forth. And, uh, but when you have theorists, it's like, I don't really wanna hear people's theories. I don't care about that, it's so academic and so pointless. I would rather hang out with people making something as opposed to people commenting about something. And it's funny, because when I wrote The Twilight Zone Companion, I wrote it to learn how to be a writer-producer in television, not, and so then when people offered me gigs to write books about other TV shows, I always said no, because that wasn't why I did that book. I didn't do that book to then write the making of MASH or the making of, you know, uh, Hello Kitty or whatever, you know, any, or anything, you know, My Little Pony. But, um, you know, so I, and, and it's funny because on DVDs and Blu-rays, I'll always listen to the commentaries of the directors or the writers of the, sh of the film or TV show, but when it's some guy, some theorist, like he's the head of the film department at, you know, some university and he has this, this theme about alienation or whatever, it's like, oh, I don't, go away. <laughs> you know, it's not, it's not worth my time and it's not of interest to me. Um, that doesn't mean that you can't have larger meanings or metaphors or any of that, but ultimately for any film or TV show or book or any work of art to have relevance, it has to touch you here. It has to move you emotionally. Um, we love Van Gogh not because of the theory of what he's doing. We love Van Gogh because those paintings speak to us. They move us. And, uh, you know, so that's... The one thing I do like about the modern age is authenticity is valued now. So, for instance, if people recognize me as an authentic person and that my work is in alignment 
with who I am as a person or the people I mentor, the, run, the round table I run. If everything I do from Mr. Sci-Fi to the round table to Space Command to all these things are all um, in a line, they all speak to the same compassion, they speak to the same kindness, um, people recognize that I'm, I'm authentic in what I say and do and I'm very glad that that matters because when I started my career, the, the only time someone in the audience would encounter something of some work of mine is by reading a book I'd written or watching a TV show. I might get a fan letter or maybe meet someone at a convention. Now, the audience is directly in communication with me. And I actually like that because it tells me I'm, I'm on the right path because I know, and it, I don't need the fans, I don't need the fans to tell me what to do artistically, but it's nice to know that what I'm setting out to do is being accomplished. So it's great. Well, that's the problem. It's people who are in the ivory tower, people who are, I mean, particularly, like it's like people who didn't know anyone who made that film or anyone who made that TV show. It's like, you know, some expert on Howard Hawks, but he didn't know the guy. And, fre and frequently they'll come up with all these reasons why something was done that has nothing to do with why it was really done. It could be they were losing the light, so that's why he shot it as a one, or you know, like one with, without cuts. You know, it, it might not have been a, a stylistic choice, it might have been the light was gone. Or, you know, you, there's always things that come out great through the wonderful chaos that production is. Um, you know, you always, see the lovely, see if I wanted total control over what I was doing, I'd be a novelist. Because novelists can sit in their little rooms and the universe can be exactly the way they want it in their work, and then they give it to the editor, and they can take those notes or not take those notes, but they're sort of the god of that universe they create. I love to collaborate. I love what actors bring to my work, what, what designers bring to my work, what everyone brings to my work. I love collaboration because there's such an element of surprise. If you choose people who are talented and brilliant and passionate, the work they come up with will surprise you. When an actor takes a, for instance, there was a, in the pilot of Space Command, there was a monologue I wrote for Bob Picardo where he talks about the death of his wife. And when I wrote it, I said, this probably won't work, but I'll try it and I can always cut it out. And then Bob delivered it and it's astonishing, it's wonderful. And, um, and so I was really glad I trusted my actors and said, okay, I'm not convinced, let me see what he can do with it. <laughs> and he surprised me because he really went somewhere truthful. And, um, you know, and that was, that was me partnering with someone who made my work better. So I, I have nothing but gratitude. What makes the Twilight Zone different from everything else? Quality. <laughs> it's good. Um, okay. The Twilight Zone is possibly the best television show ever made. Uh, I think there's an argue, argument that can be made for that. Rod Serling never wanted to be a science fiction writer. He wanted basically to be the Arthur Miller of television. And when he was censored, when he couldn't write about politics, when he couldn't write about race, there were so many things he wanted to write about and they, the censors just would not allow it. And his work, he felt his work was being turned into meaningless crap because of these uh, limitations. He thought, well, if I do science fiction, Maybe I can slide these things past and they won't notice what I'm actually doing. And that, that's worked. It worked exactly. He, he ended up writing four pilot scripts for The Twilight Zone before the show got greenlit. He was very determined to, uh, to have that happen. And um, so I think it came from the fact that this was a man who had a lot to say and knew how to say it. 
Uh, Twilight Zone just isn't about the gimmick. The gimmicks are great and the twist endings and all of those things are wonderful. And the fact that it was science fiction and horror and fantasy allowed it to be universal in a way that had he just been writing about, you know, uh, Ed Medgar Evers or something, it wouldn't have been. You know, because then it would seem very dated. And the writers from that era of live television generally are not well known. You know, Tad Moselle or Reginald Rose or even Patty Chayefsky. Had Serling stayed in live TV and not created Twilight Zone, he'd probably be forgotten now. As good as Requiem for Heavyweight was or Patterns. But, but because he was forced to write in this wonderful uh, genre and write on universal themes, fear, alienation, you know, loss of identity, um, it just created these amazing stories. And his scripts were so good that they would get the top actors, actors who often wouldn't do television. And, uh, and you got Bernard Herrmann and Jerry Goldsmith, these amazing composers, and George Clemens, this phenomenal uh, cinematographer. It's just, you look at the best episodes of The Twilight Zone, and there are a lot of them, and you're just, you hold your breath. They're so beautiful in every way, and timeless, and, um, and they work. And even when you know what the story is, you're moved by these people because Rod had a genuine sympathy and empathy for the little guy, for someone working in, as a bank teller or, or a woman who's a secretary or, you know, he's not writing generally about presidents or kings or wealthy people. Uh, he doesn't, even though he himself was one of the best paid writers in television, he's not fawning. He doesn't um, idolize the rich like some writers have. He's some... Um, He's a regular guy. He's a, you know, he's, you can get the sense that he has this big heart. He really cares deeply and he's coming from the heart. And again, when I was talking a few minutes ago about authenticity, you know, Rod, when you see Rod Sterling on television, he's exactly that guy. I mean, I've seen videos of him teaching classes where he wasn't, he knew these wouldn't be broadcast and he was absolutely himself warm and funny and smart and, and caring. And, uh, and that really comes across on Twilight Zone. This is a man saying, Here's a story I want to tell and I'm sharing it with you. Or here's these other writers that I've brought aboard who have these wonderful stories to share with you. It's his gift to the audience. And it holds up because it's not about something trivial. The Twilight Zone is about something profound, deeply profound. And its meaning conveys to the younger generation as much as to the audience it was made for back in 1959. Have you seen every episode? Oh yeah. <laughs> okay. Yes. What would you say I, the top I have, five? I have actually <laughs> when I when I started writing the Twilight Zone, it was two years Twilight Zone Companion. It was two years after Rod's death, and Carol Serling, his widow, was still living in the house in Pacific Palisades. His dog was there, this uh, Irish setter, and all these uh, his, everything was exactly as he'd left. There was one room that was just the awards, the six Emmys and the Peabody Awards, and on and on. Um, and so in the garage, there were film cans, his film cans of Twilight Zone episodes, 16 millimeter prints. It was part of his contract that he would get two prints of every episode because there's no VCRs, there was no home recording back then. So often I would go home with a stack of these film cans and put them on the projector and they had the original commercials and the original coming attraction spots. And many of these had never even been put through a projector. They were just pristine, they were gorgeous. And uh, so yeah, and there were, four episodes that weren't in syndication, and then there was an, uh, a season and 18 episodes that were hour-long episodes that weren't generally syndicated. They, every now and then they'd pop up. But um, yeah, I, I had to do a little bit of uh, pursuing some of these episodes that were not in the, uh, in the general audience. Though one of the funniest stories in that regard was that I, uh, I was researching the Twilight Zone Companion, and this was just as VCRs were starting to become available for purchase, but they weren't widely available. So I recorded the episodes off the air on reel-to-reel -reel tape, I'm on um, cassette tape, 
And Rod didn't have copies of every episode. It got more and more uh, hit and miss as the seasons went on. And so at one point there were like, I think two episodes that I could just not, two or three episodes that they just never aired on KTLA. So, which was syndicating Twilight Zone. So I called the station manager and I said, listen, I'm doing a book on, uh, on the Twilight Zone and I, I, there's three episodes I need to see and I want to find out when you're going to be airing them because I really need to see them. He said, well, what episodes are they? And I told him, he said, well, well, we'll broadcast them next week. So all of LA watched the episodes just because I needed to see them. Oh, wow. <laughs> I thought he was going to just have me in and maybe screen them for me. But nope, everybody got to see him. And uh, so that was, that was really funny and wonderful. But, uh, but it was great that I was able to do, to produce the Blu-ray set and do 52 commentaries. And, and now, of course, I'm going to do the, the rest of them, the 104 that are left. And uh, so people will be able to buy by all of them, so we'll be able to hear everything I know about Twilight Zone and uh, for all of the episodes. It's going to be great fun. If you had to choose, what would be the top five? I love Walking Distance, which was Rod's personal favorite. It's about a man who goes back in time to his own childhood. It's a wonderful episode. Um, on Thursday, we leave for Home, which is a great episode that Rod wrote with James Whitmore. It's one of the hour ones. Uh, I the, the Beholder, which is the woman who has, whose head is wrapped in bandages, waiting to see if she's been made to look normal. Um, Nightmare at 20,000 Feet, which is the gremlin on the wing with William, William Shatner that Rod, Richard Donner directed. It's a great episode. Um, I mean, I could, I could list 20. I mean, and um, um, It's a Good Life with Billy Mummy. That's a great one where he's got this, the power to do, to terrorize a, a small town. Um, but again, I could easily pick, you know, Death Ship, Miniature. There's so, there's so, so many. In Praise of Pip. Um, you know, there's just, it just goes on and on. Time of at Last with Burgess Meredith is the last man on earth. Um, there's just, I mean, week after week after week after week, it was an astonishing artistic feat, what he was, what he was pulling off. It was, uh, no one has ever really equaled it, I don't think. What's your writing process? I work five days a week minimally, sometimes six, sometimes seven, but I'd prefer not to. Uh, I'm always thinking about a story or uh, there's always something going on you know, in my head. I don't have regular writing hours. At various times I have, but now because I'm writing and producing and directing and doing books as well, um, my day is split up into smaller chunks and I'm often doing many different tasks in a given day uh, because I have full-time editor, full-time, um, you know, uh, line producer, VFX team, all of that. Um, uh, so when I sit down to write, I try to write for several hours minimally. I, but I, I, but it's like, you know, I, I, but I can also write on the fly if I need to. I can write almost anywhere. I can write in a moving car. I've written in Jeeps traveling through the jungle in Thailand when I did a pilot for NBC that was shot there. I mean, it's like, I, I'm often working on several scripts simultaneously. Um, I'm always reading several books uh, at the same time. And then I'll come up with ideas and I'll jot them down. I'll save those. And sometimes I'll, I'll, um, I'll, write them or I won't. I mean, one of the ideas I came up with recently that I liked was, um, well, two I, two I came up with that I liked. One was, um, I heard about the slave revolt in Haiti where they actually succeeded, you know, in, in freeing themselves. And I thought, what would have happened if before the Civil War that had happened in America, that that had spread to America and then now it's the modern day and there's a separate country of free, of, of the descendants of freed black slaves so the South, it's, it's not the Confederacy won the, won the Civil War and we've got two Americas, it's that there's a black nation 
where those slaves freed themselves and what would that look like and what would our country look like and that was an interesting idea and another idea I came up with which was rather amusing was just a short story where someone would have a chance to go back in time one time and there's an artist who never got his due was never recognized for his talent and died without knowing that anyone would would you know cared about his art he'd been rejected a lot during his lifetime so he goes back and convinces the official um, art authorities to like take him in and accept him and do a sh do shows of his paintings and so forth and the way it would be structured is we would believe throughout the story that it's Vincent van Gogh but in the end it's Adolf Hitler because if Hitler had succeeded as an artist right. he never would have gone into politics he wouldn't have been there'd be no Nazi party none of that right. and so it just it just struck me as a funny story that that Hitler had he just been appreciated for his artwork <laughs> it would have really changed that century sure. so um, it was just a, but but again so I, I come up with many many ideas like for instance when I mentioned sitting down to come up with 200 ideas it's actually up to 300 now ideas for movies or TV shows where I just jot them down and and um, and sometimes I'll, I'll, I'll pursue them it, it varies there are certain ideas that I definitely will write like with Space Command I knew I was going to do that and I knew that I would write the entire season which which I have um, and then we'd shoot it so um, but I'm always working on something I'm never lying fallow um, and some scripts it's like like over the next few months we'll be rewriting this, the final six hours of season one of Space Command but meantime I plan to write you know I mean we're also going to write and shoot all, all the other five pilots of the showrunners network um, you know and so that's so we've written Sweet Haven now and, and again it's always just who are the characters what is the idea how does this move how does this grow what is it saying you know but it's always through characters I mean it's you know with, with, with Sweet Haven part of the genesis of that was my friend Michael Harney he's in Project Blue Book he's in Orange is the New Black he's in um, For All Mankind and yet he never gets to play these wonderful lead roles that he should and so I said well how would you like to play a cop and be the lead in Sweet Haven where all the people under 60 die and but I also created his brother who will also be playing who went the exact opposite path and is very dangerous and I thought that would be fun too because I have my physical trainer who I've been with for 30 years Elaine and I both um, he had an identical twin brother who was very very different from him and so that became of interest to me so it isn't just using a cliche from soap operas you know of the twins the good twin and the bad twin it's just the interesting thing of someone who goes very different from someone who looks like him you know it's just fun and and then you know so it's but um but any given week I'm writing I'm you know working in my producer capacity so I'll be meeting with my VFX team and reviewing VFX shots I'll be marketing I'll be doing the Mr. Sci-Fi stuff I'll be building my audience it's all part of the job you know it's all you know I am you know in directing I mean today we were just you know getting sets ready to get them get them up and running you know so it's exciting it's fun when you were riding in the jeep uh, mm -hmm. through the jungles sure. of uh, typing. You, uh, oh you were typing yeah I can type in a moving vehicle and, and so th this wasn't on like a legal pad you no. were actually no. okay well, yeah uh, yeah I, I can ride in a, on a legal pad but but it's easier to type in a moving vehicle um, because you're, when you're jostled and you're trying to write it, you kind of you know do that but um, but I'm, I'm very fortunate I think it's because when I was a kid I read books my mom would have me in the back seat and I would read voraciously and I think the fact that I did that all you know kind of meant that I'm not I don't get car sick and so um, so yeah and and often I've had to write 
um, under deadline in those kind of circumstances. I can write with music playing. I mean, I can be in like a busy coffee shop or something and I'm not distracted. So, um, you know, I just go into that world, you know, and, uh, you know, so it's, it's very fun. How did you figure out your writing process? <sighs> well, um, in television, you have deadlines. And so you just have to get very, you write very fast. You'll have maybe a week or two to write an entire script. The hardest I ever, I ever had, the hardest experience was I had to write two hour scripts in one week for two different series. There was one period of three months where I was writing, I think, nine scripts for six different shows. And, and I could juggle between outlining, I'd be outlining one while writing the script for another. But there were two shows they would not budge on the deadline. And so the way I did that was I would write 10 pages of one in the morning, have lunch to clear my head, then write 10 pages of the other one in the afternoon, and I did that for six days straight. So at the end of six days, I had two 60-page scripts. And one was Forever Night, and the other was Space Precinct, and they both got shot. They both got made. And, um, uh, and then another time, I wrote 55 pages in one day, which was for, uh, I think, an animated show called Black Star. And Elaine was a faster typist. That was back when we were on typewriters. And so I was writing the pages freehand and handing them to Elaine, and she was typing. And at the end of the day, I had the entire script written. So, and that got made too, of course. And uh, so there, there's something, there's a very different energy where you know that everything you write will get made. It's, it's then it becomes very pragmatic. It's not like, you, you know, you don't, you don't wait for inspiration. You put in the work. You just, you know, it's like, if I have to write a, an entire script over a weekend, I, I can, I will. I prefer not to, <laughs> you know, but, um, but I find that qualitatively, there are scripts that I've written in a week they were every bit as good as scripts that took me a year. And, uh, you know, so I'm, uh, you know, it's, I'm, I, I have faith in my abilities after all this time. I know what I can do. Um, though you have to know the story you're telling because it, you can't afford to get lost in your script. It can't, it can't go south. You have to know. That's why outlining, particularly in TV, is so important because you have to know what the, what the structure is, what the, how it tracks. That doesn't mean you can't um, de depart from that if you know you're going somewhere better, but you just can't, there's not a lot of room for uh, that wild experimentation, you know, so. But, um, but, but usually I find that I'm, my, I'm clearest in terms of my writing in the afternoons, so I'll usually write in the afternoons, but I can write any time that I need to write, you know, if, if I'm under the gun. And, uh, I remember one time when we were shooting the first hour of Space Command, Bob Picardo mentioned that I'd referenced The Wizard of Oz in an early scene that he had with Doug Jones, but I didn't pay it off. And so we were going to be shooting that like a few days later, and I woke up in the morning with the entire scene in my head uh, that paid off The Wizard of Oz. And so, while, so I said to Elaine, you drive. And so while we were driving to the studio, I typed the scene. And then when we got to the studio, I went into the office and said, print this out, then I gave it to, to Doug and to Bob, and that, that day we shot it. <laughs> so, but that was because Bob was right. He had a great um, note, and, uh, but it was just like, but that's how, so sometimes the process is like that. Um, other times, you know, it's, uh, other times you'll have to go through draft after draft after draft, and, uh, and hopefully find, find your way, you know. But, but TV has a much shorter um, 
you know, uh, runway. <laughs> so you better be able to take flight when you run out of, you know, the, the, the landing strip. You know, it's, you, you better be able to, to hit the air. And uh, but that's why, but I love the speed of television and I love the fact that most, the, what, what you write gets made, you know? It's, uh, I never could have had a happy life as a screenwriter. I don't think that would have been for me at all. Well, that was my next question is, that what would your advice be to someone who doesn't have the advantage of a deadline? They are their own deadline. Yes. And, and they are their own audience for a while. Work with a timer. That's what I do. Um, we all have timers in our, in our phones. So say, okay, I'm going to write. You have to write on a regular basis. You have to have a discipline. And it's not, so if you say, um, my writing hours are going to be from 9 a.m. to 12, you know, noon, and, and you find a space where you're not going to get distracted, you find a writing space. It could be at a Starbucks. It could be a corner of your home. It doesn't matter where it is, but it's, that's your writing place. And people know it's your writing place, and they know that your time, that's your writing time, and it's sacrosanct. You don't do other stuff in that in those hours and you set your alarm for three hours or two hours or one hour, whatever it is, and you sit there. And even if nothing comes, you sit there, you do the work and, um, and you treat it just like a job, just like if you're working at a shoe store, you know, you're working for yourself, but you cannot just watch TV. You cannot go, you know, um, you know, talk with your pals. No, you're a writer. And, uh, but also setting a deadline for when a draft will be done is very important. So you just say, okay, uh, three weeks from now I'm going to have a draft written. It doesn't have to be good, it just has to be the beginning, middle, and end. And then you can go back and revise, but just you, just you go, you know. And if, and, um, but professional writers need to treat it like a job. The best schedule of anyone I ever knew was Ray Bradbury. He would write five days a week. He would get up in the morning, write um, until lunchtime. Then he would uh, have lunch, then he would take a nap, and in the afternoon he would attend to business. And then evenings and weekends were for the family. And he did that for over 70 years. So, pretty phenomenal. Well, these wonderful things that we have in our pockets to shoot film yes. also are a distraction. Yes. And now we can check news, and now everything well, that we're interested in yes. is now going to be reflected back over and over again. Yeah. And us. you have to be careful. I mean, again, you can lose yourself in all of these pursuits, but ultimately, at the end of the day, it's like, how committed I am to say, how committed am I to what I say I want? And because at the end of the day, the, if you don't believe it, no one else will. And the only way they can believe it is if you get things finished, if you get things out there, if you, you know, I mean, nobody ever says, I want to be a brain surgeon, but I want it to be really easy. You know, it's they know that you're, you, you put in work, you know, it's like, and, but, but people think that writing is going to be easy. It's not. Some days it's easy, some days it's hard. But fortunately, if you're doing it right, the audience can't tell what was hard and what was easy, which is fun, which is really fun. Um, when it's easy, when it's good, and, and it comes easily, it, it is good. You know, I'm not deluding myself. When it's hard, though, I can struggle and struggle, and if I nail it, ultimately, uh, the audience has no idea that it was difficult. It flows. You know, so that's a relief. <laughs> so, uh, but, you know, it's, but, you know, it's, the script is just the blueprint. The script is just the arrow pointing the way. You know, I, I don't, I mean, for instance, 
I have to decide, like today we were having an actress try on one of the costumes to see if it worked. We were deciding if she would be on a bed in this hospital room or if she would be in like this, this um, you know, uh, cylinder thing uh, that would be like with tubes plugged in and things and computer panels and stuff. And so it's like that's part of the writing process too. Uh, determining what the lighting is going to be. Is it going to be subdued? Is it going to be bright? What color is it going to be? What lens are we going to be using? These are all creative decisions. Um, you know, I've been acquiring, uh, like I, I own, I think, 14 or 15 spacesuits now. You know, so I, I acquire them from different productions or my mom got me one when I was a kid. And, um, and then you redress them. I get sets from, the best place to get sets from is uh, big budget science fiction movies that tanked because no one saw them and the production design is great. And then you, re you redress them so they're yours, but it gives you this level of um, just artistry and, and detail and they, because they put so much money into it. So, you, um, so that's, and that's a trick I learned from Rod Serling because when he shot Twilight Zone uh, at MGM, he used every prop and costume and set that they had, you know. Uh, and when I was a producer at Sliders, on Sliders at Universal, I said, can I use everything from every Universal production ever made and they said, huh, no one's ever asked that, let me find out. And they came back and they said with a very few exceptions, yes. And we were using stuff from Jurassic Park and Time Cop and 12 Monkeys and on and on. It was fabulous. Uh, uh, best little whorehouse in Texas. We shot one of our episodes in that house. <laughs> so, uh, but you know, it's, um, I'm in the business of being ingenious. <laughs> and so the more I come up, the more I pull a rabbit from a hat, the more that I come up with a clever idea, the more I say, okay, this is, this is the way to get where we're going. Um, it's a series of problems that need to be solved, but it's a joyous process. And I mean, to take something that's just in your head and put it out in the world so everyone can see it, it's just, uh, it's just there's, no, there's nothing like it. It's wonderful. When, when it comes together, it's great. You know, I, uh, I love that process. And I feel part of a tradition. I feel in a way that Rod Serling and Harlan Ellison and all these wonderful people who uh, inspired and, and, and guided me, I'm part of that tra tradition. And the reason I like to mentor people is because I feel that I can then pass on what I've learned from, from these amazing people. And uh, it doesn't end with me. I'm just part of, the, part of the process, part of the flow. Have you ever mentored someone or met someone that you could just tell they weren't going to be teachable? Yes, I have. And uh, and the lovely thing is I don't ever assume that I have to succeed with anybody. Like one of the rules of my round table when I started was there's no, any, everyone is welcome if they come with a good heart. There's no decision as to who's deserving. No, no decision as to who has talent or who's going to make it or not. If someone comes with a good heart, writers, producers, actors, directors, editors, composers, anybody, they're welcome because we're creating a community, a supportive community. Um, when I mentor people, if they're just not going to get it, I just stop talking because it's sort of like, you know, this, when they'll say, well, this is what I'm going to do. And I'll say, well, that's probably not going to work. <laughs> you know, I don't, and I'm not usually not that blunt, but I'll say, well, you know, here's a few other ideas that would I think be easier uh, to make happen. And if they just are resistant to that, I can say, okay, well, go with God. And also if they come back and say, I did that and it worked, I'll say, great. You know, because again, I don't need to have, there's no, there's no one way to do it. There's a lot of ways to fail, of course, you know. Giving up is a, is a really bad idea because when you give up, it guarantees that nothing's going to happen. But if, but you can't just keep failing and failing and failing. You have to figure out what's going wrong. Some people can't write 
And if you can't write, but you want to make film or make TV, then affiliate with someone who's got the talents you don't have and do what you can do, do what you're good at. Uh, some people, for instance, Guillermo del Toro told me he's not great with dialogue. So he, you know, he's good with plot, good with imagery, my God. But it, so he affiliates with people who write dialogue well. Um, you know, you find the person, like when I mentioned earlier that I direct with Elaine, could I learn the skills that Elaine has to work with direct with actors? Yes, I could. I could learn those skills, and I'm not terrible. I mean, I can. I can work with actors. I do know what the what the through line emotionally is, and so forth. But but Elaine, having been an actor and gone to drama school and directed off Broadway, she has a depth of uh, she has a bag of tricks that I don't have. But the th but because I'm collaborating with her, I don't have to learn that stuff because she has it. So I can say, well, how, how do we get this? How do we get this effect? How do we get this actor to do this thing? And she'll then talk to them and it's like, wow, great, you know. So, um, and sometimes it's miraculous to me. Like, it's like, how did you do that? So good, you know, and uh, so that's, that's really fun. But on the other hand, I had to teach her to like, not think of it like directing a play. It's like, look at the monitor. See, that angle's not a good angle. <laughs> so like, turn them this way, <laughs> you know, and now, now she's much more savvy to, to camera angles and all that kind of stuff. So we, we, we learn from each other. Can you explain why outlining matters to all the screenwriters who are set against it? Yeah, I mean, you don't want to outline to such a degree that you have no juice left for the script. You know, it's not, it's not like building a concrete wall around yourself that you can't break out of. It's basically to give you the bones of structure so you know where your story is going. Now in television, outlining is much more important because if you're under the gun, if they're gonna be shooting in three weeks or two weeks or tomorrow, you, you can't go off into left field. You have, so that's where an outline really needs to be nailed down. Um, in features, yeah, but see, but what, what this really speaks to is you need to, you need to know, understand how structure works. You know, because structure, I, early in my career, I struggled a lot with structure. And then there was one period, one summer, where I was writing, I think, all the episodes of a series for CBS. And, um, and I was writing so much and so quickly, all of a sudden it just clicked in. It was like it went right into the groove and suddenly structure was simple for me. It was just like build, it was like the bones of a house. And the bigger the story, the bigger the house, but it's like the framework that holds it all together, and I understood that, and and then it became just second nature. It was very funny when I, when Michael Reeves and I were were uh, outlining the uh, the Sulu story, the Star Trek story that we we did with George Takei. <laughs> we were both old hands. Michael was the writer who got me into television, and at one point we we're outlining the steps and jotting it down, and then about two thirds of the way through, we just looked at each other, and Michael said, "You got this, right?" And I said, "Yeah." And then so we didn't outline the rest of it because we both knew where it went. And then we just wrote it. And, uh, but again, you have to be a really old hand to know how to do that stuff. But, um, but outlines are great because then you know, well, Rod used to say, Rod Sterling used to say that if he knew the ending, he could write a script. But, if, but he said, yeah, I've got so many stories where it's a beginning and a middle and, and, I, and no end. And he said, I can't write those because I don't know where they go. I don't know how they resolve. And so outlining, rigorously outlining, means you know the beginning, the middle, and the end. And uh, because you do not want to get lost in the middle, you know, and uh, or at the beginning or anywhere, um, because a story has to satisfy the viewer. It has to come to an ending where you go, okay, well that was worth my time, and uh, and so outlining is very important. It's not, I, you know, again, if you come up with a better idea while you're writing, okay, if but you have to know that it is a better idea. You can't think, oh well, that didn't pay off. 
if it doesn't work, don't do it. it. It's better to follow an outline that works rather than experiment. But um, but the more you write, the stronger you get at this stuff, you know. And um, you just learn you learn your craft, and craft is structure, craft is outlining, because um, you know that's, that's just how it works. You know, it's I, you know it's like I I write short outlines. I don't I don't I would never write like a thirty or forty page outline. But like the most I would do for an outline would be maybe seven pages for an hour script. Um, and with novels, I, I'll jot notes. I don't rigorously outline for novels, but I know the structure. I know where the story goes and I know who does what. Um, but, but there are writers who don't outline who are still very, very good and succeed. But if you're just starting out, I think outlining is a really important tool. I, I would urge everyone to utilize it. But, but at the end of the day, it's getting to the end of the story and however you got there, if it works, it doesn't really matter how you got there. Outlines are just a tool. How would you teach story structure to someone who needs help? I would say watch movies that you feel have a satisfactory ending and Break, write, down the, write down the scenes, write down what happens, write down how the characters move through it and what the story does and see why that satisfies, why that works. You know, years ago I was hired to do a pilot where one of the characters was a gangster, was sort of a bad guy at the beginning, but then he helps these two kids and he turns out to be a good guy. And I thought, well, how, how do they do that trick? How do, like, how do you do a trick where you like somebody even though they're a bad guy at the beginning? And so I watched Casablanca and I saw that everything Bogart says is cynical, but everything he does is moral, is ethical. And his actions are speaking louder than his words. It was a very simple trick and a very subtle one, but it worked like gangbusters. It was terrific. And so that once I knew to do that, that told me where I could go. And so you, you know, there's thousands of TV shows and movies. Don't, don't try and invent stuff from whole cloth. Study structures that worked. A structure is like a machine. It's like, you know, um, you don't, I don't, I, I always say don't steal plots, but study structure um, because there's stuff that works and stuff that doesn't work. And the more you deviate from standard structure, the better the writing has to be. So, for instance, Quentin Tarantino can use very unusual structures, but the writing has to really be solid. Um, and uh, so that's just the way, the way that works. How do you write a scene? Uh, you try to have every scene have an emotional point, okay? Uh, you, d you try to avoid scenes that are just exposition. That's a trap that people fall into where everyone's talking just to explain twists and turns of the story and they're boring scenes. You come from character, who's, who needs what, who wants what, who's longing for what, who's hiding what they're really feeling, who's not saying, what's going on in their heart or in their head. You, know, you find the juice of the scene. Usually it's conflict, but not always. You find something, I mean, usually the way it works with an audience is the structure is familiar, the details of the story are fresh. So in other words, like if you go to a certain movie, you know, okay, this is most likely gonna have a happy ending. Okay, but what the characters say, how they get there, that's where you can surprise an audience and that's where you can engage them. Um, and so, so it might be a, stor a story 
from your life or someone you know or something you read or you know any number of things. I mean, everything I write is a synthesis, a combination of everything and anything. Um, for instance, I knew I wanted to do a scene in Space Command that was in Spanish because one of our actors was, was from Venezuela and he's very charming and very, very good, uh, Victor Manso. And so when I did the bonus episode during the pandemic, I said, okay, I'm gonna write a scene uh, where he's calling his estranged father to invite him to his wedding. And, and so I wrote the scene in English and I originally wrote the role of the father to be Guillermo del Toro. I reached out to Guillermo and he wasn't available at that point for various personal reasons, but, but Guillermo had, a, had certain elements from his childhood that I actually wove into that, that scene. And, and it was about the son introducing his fiancee to the father and trying to get the father to come to Mars in that case to attend the wedding. And ultimately they want the father to move in with them. And it's about a father's disappointment in his son's choices and then finally coming to accept who his son is and see the commonality between the two of them. And it's a lovely scene and I was really glad to do it in Spanish because I love the idea of having different languages in Space Command. For instance, Mira Ferlin and the actress who play her daughter speak Serbo-Croatian uh, when they talk to each other. And, uh, but it's a great scene with the father and the son and the fiance because you stop realizing it's in Spanish. You're so engaged in the people and reading the subtitles. And so, and I had Victor translated into Spanish and every now and then he'd say, well, it can't be this exact thing, but this will make sense uh, culturally. And I said, sure, fine, great. And, uh, but I really love that scene because there's an emotional truth in it. And, uh, you know, so that's, that's great. Every now and then I'll write a scene that's just for the gosh gee whiz, you know, a, a rocket ship taking off or, you know, something like that, you know, Battle on Titan or whatever. It's very funny because we were shooting the Battle on Titan where these synthetic humans, they're soldiers and they're gunning down these, these uh, freedom fighters who are human and uh, one of the extras didn't show up. So I said, well, I'll put on a space suit. I said, but you have to, you have to disintegrate me. <laughs> so I'm in the space and I get hit by a laser blast and disintegrate with a scream and it was great fun, great fun. Yeah, Bergman was great at that too. What is it, Sonata? The, the piano player daughter. Yes. They come. Um, she's Sonata. right, and then yeah. or and no, no, sorry. The piano player mother, and ah, then the yes. the the uh, social worker daughter, mm -hmm. and and you know it, it's you yes. don't need subtitles to to no. you know the, no. the um, tension and the and, emotion. And well, now we have thanks to Netflix, we know that foreign TV shows can be successful here, and that people will read subtitles, and that's. Fabulous! I, I'm I'm so, oh, yeah. so glad of that. I, I, well, I don't mind me reading subtitles. No. I absolutely love yeah. foreign films, but yeah, it helps to read. So yeah, it does. Yeah, this comes in handy. <laughs> and not just Ramona Cleary books. Yeah, yeah. No, yeah. nothing against them. Yeah, there you go. I like those. Um, we've heard that. Mm -hmm. You said this the other day on, yes. on your live stream, so I'll just. We've heard that you say you don't come up with storylines unless there's a chance to utilize them. Mm. Why is that? Well, I, I might come up with an idea. But the ones that I really dig in on and write the script, um, I'm, I'm writing that to shoot it. I'm writing it to make it. I'm not, I'm not, you know, writing, it's not an exercise. I never write just for like the, f I was gonna say the fun of it. I do write for the fun of it, but I don't write something that's just gonna be in a drawer. That's, that's purposeless. Um, and, and, and also my heroes when I was a kid, like Rod Serling, like Ray Bradbury, they wrote books and TV shows and movies. They could do all three. And so I've always, throughout my career, written books. TV is my main form. TV is my main art form and my art form of choice. But I've always written books. I've always um, 
you know, written screenplays as well. And so, uh, and the books were, you know, I'm, I'm really proud of the books I've done. You know, and uh, The Twilight Zone Companion, the, the book with Guillermo, Greenlighting Yourself, the Magic Time Trilogy of Novels, they've all, I'm really glad I got to do them. They were uh, well worth doing. Well, what if someone says, well, I don't, I'm not there yet. I don't have anyone to, mm -hmm. to pitch to, or I haven't assembled my team where we can crowdfund and make this. Um, mm -hmm. What's what's your advice to that? I mean, so they it, should they still be writing just yes. to utilize them, not well, just to sit in a drawer? You have to learn your your craft. You know, you have to know how to tell a story, and you need to get feedback so that you know if something works or doesn't work. But on the other hand, if you're shooting, you learn very quickly when you're shooting if something works because if the actors can't deliver it, or you know, I, I really encourage people to shoot what they've written at least to see how it works when actors are saying it. I mean, you, you get a wealth of knowledge from making it because the script, again, is, this, and it's, it's, it's such a quiet object. You know, whereas if, a, if you make a short or a, a feature, that can start getting attention. That can start getting, and, and, and if it doesn't work, you say, oh, those characters don't sound realistic. I have to work harder on my dialogue. Or, or um, whoa, this, this scene was really boring. There was really nothing happening there. You know, it's, things will become incredibly clear when you shoot them. And, uh, and that's again where television is such a great learning ground because when everything you write gets made, you very quickly learn what an actor can say and what they can't. And, uh, and you know, you, 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 it's a very fast learning curve. And uh, I'm very grateful for that. And, uh, but I would say to anyone, be bold. Don't be, you know, I was, I was gonna say don't be afraid. You can be afraid, but there's a, there's a saying that I have in my wallet which is the bolder I am, the better things go. And that's so true. You know, if you, if you fall on your face, you'll get up again. You know, I, people say, well, life is like a river and it takes you where you're meant to go. I say, I say to people, if you fell in a real river, you wouldn't say that. You'd swim like hell for the shore. You know, it's like, you know, don't, don't just let, let things carry you along. Figure out what you want, and, and, but really go for it. You know, it's like failure is not a terrible thing. They don't take you off to writer's jail. You know, it's the, it, if you fail, get better. It's a process. And, and, and also, by the way, uh, you know, sometimes what you write, some people will like it, some people won't. But if they really like it, if you polarize people where some people really love it and some people really hate it, that's not bad. I mean, look at the work of David Lynch. You know, you, you don't have to please everyone. You just have to please someone. And the first person you have to please is yourself. And the way you please yourself is by saying, oh, I got that right. That came out well. That was, that was great. And, um, you know, so, so the lovely thing is that it used to be that you had to come here to Hollywood to make dreams come true. And now you can make them come true anywhere. If you're in East McKeesport, Pennsylvania, or, or Kuala Lumpur, you can still, we've all got phones, we've all got video cameras, we've all got the internet. It's make use of what's at hand. You're in the 21st century, for God's sake. You know, you thank God, but um, don't waste the opportunity. You could, make a, you could make a short film this week. You know, don't wait. Don't wait, act. Ray Bradbury had a wonderful sign over his typewriter that I now have over my computer that says, don't think, act. And that's so true. It's, well, it actually is don't think, do. And it's like, yeah, right on. Yes, absolutely. What was the most polarizing David Lynch work? Wild at Heart? <laughs> Dune, probably. Oh, Dune, okay. Uh -huh. <laughs> well, no, but, but Blue Velvet. I mean, I mean, his, I mean, one of my favorite David Lynch races, um, Elaine and I went to see Mulholland. And at the end of that, 
was it Mulholland Drive? It's whichever one he directed, Mulholland Drive, I think. And at the end of the movie, you know, the screen goes to black, and there's that moment where everyone in the audience is just seeing in the darkness before the house lights come up, and someone yelled out, what the fuck was that? <laughs> and so, but I understood what the story was. So in the lobby, I started telling, I was surrounded by a crowd of people from the, from the audience, telling them what the movie had been about, what it was. Because they had totally lost, they had no comprehension. And then they said, oh, okay, now we get it. But, uh, but again, it's fine. Because the thing about David Lynch is he's following his aesthetic purpose. Mm. He is telling stories he wants to tell that only he can tell. Great, you know, great. If you only had three rules in which to guide your screenplay, mm -hmm. what writing rules would those be? Make sure, make sure that all the characters are distinctive from each other and have their own distinctive way of speaking and know what they care about, know what they want, know, know them. Write them as, as people, not as um, generic cab driver, generic any, whatever, anything. Um, tell a story that pays off in a meaningful way. And not just for the main character, but try and have it pay off in an emotionally satisfying way for a variety of your characters. Um, and, um, and have something fresh in it, fresh and, fresh and meaningful, so that it isn't something you've seen a million times. I'm, I'm not here to write stories I've seen a million times, I'm here to write stories I haven't seen a million times. And, uh, and that doesn't mean it can't be inspired by the tradition I write in. And it's fun, like for instance in Space Command, all of the Space Command personnel are named after famous science fiction writers I grew up reading. So there's Simak and Sturgeon and Bradbury and you know, Le Guin and, and so forth. And that's very fun. And the funny thing was, at one point I had a character named Murray Leinster after a science fiction writer from the 50s. And, uh, and I cast Victor Manso, who's Latino, and I thought, well, he doesn't look like a Murray Leinster. So then I had to think of a science fiction or fantasy writer, a Latino one. And finally, I remembered Jorge Luis Borges, who's a great fantasist uh, of, from Argentina. And so I named the character Jorge Borges. And oh, uh, so that was fun. That was very fun. So, uh, but I just, uh, you know, I, but I would just make sure it has to be original, truthful. The characters have to be vivid. And it has to, it has to take us to an emotional place that's satisfying. Those are the, those are the big ones. And uh, I mean, a film can have a lot of drawbacks. For instance, no one script is going to be everything to everybody. You know, you can't, like for instance, you might want to write something about transgender rights at some point, and maybe, maybe you'll put in a transgender character in one script, or maybe ultimately you want to write about that in a big way. That, that might be the, the, the main drive of your story. But again, I don't ever write message things. You know, you have to have a story that's engaging. Elaine will start with themes. I rarely do. I usually start with a character or an actor that I want to work with, or it, it can be almost anything. It can be almost anything. And, uh, but I always arrive at the same place, which is a, a story that I want to tell. So just as there's the Bechdel test, mm -hmm. is there a message test so that we, yeah, as filmmakers, sure. okay. Yeah, you, you, know, you know that, that, that it's a message uh, film if when the lights come up, everyone's gone. I mean, Rod, Rod Sterling used to be very cognizant. He had a lot to say, uh, you know, politically and socially, but he knew that you had to create characters that the, the, the people cared about. Like when Burgess Meredith is the last man on earth, you care about him, you're engaged by that man, and, uh, and you feel sorry for him, what happens to him. You know, it's, uh, I mean, I don't know any really good writers who, who don't 
put the focus on character. In science fiction, you know, whether it's Deckard in Blade Runner or whomever, you know, there's people that you care about. Uh, Ripley in Aliens, I mean, great example. Uh, you have to, there's, there's so many films and TV shows where you don't care about the people and you don't, and it's just forgettable. It's just forgettable. So it's uh, really important to, to do that. And, uh, you know, and, and, and again, I'm not here to change everyone's opinion. My goal is, get, is to convince people to be compassionate and to convince people to be, that, that the power of love is important, that we're, we are united by our commonality far more than we're divided by our opinions, you know. And so that's what I would urge people to recognize, you know. And uh, so that's, I mean, my big message is compassion. And uh, that's a good message, I think, to have. Why do we care about Ellen Ripley? We care about Ripley because she's, she, well, first of all, in Aliens, she cares about someone other than herself. She's trying to save that little girl, even if it, she dies. She's willing to sacrifice herself. But also, she's the smartest person in that movie. She's the most competent person in that movie. That story is about her where she starts traumatized and step by step by step to save other people. She has to take control and command. She knows what she's doing. And the fact, and, and, and again, it's a great marriage between character and actress because Sigourney Weaver is able to play a powerful woman where she's no less feminine, she's just competent. And, uh, and you believe every single thing she does in that movie. It's terrific, it's one of my favorite films, it's a great film. How was she received? How was that character received at that time? Well, it's very funny, when Alien came out, you know, originally uh, Ripley was a male character and they changed to a female character and uh, and I thought it was great, but my brother Jim, my, my brothers grew up in Orange County, I grew up in LA, when my parents divorced when I was three, and my brother Jim said, oh man, that woman, she was such a bitch. He was like so traditional. Now I think he'd have a different opinion. He was young back then, but it's like he was from a much more conservative background, and it was like, you know, so he was like um, riled up about having a, a woman character that strong, but I thought it was just great. I, I loved it from the first. So, and that was what, 83? 79. 79, Alien, oh, sorry, Alien okay. 79. Uh, Aliens was, uh -huh. 70, was 86. Okay. But the fun okay. part was, um, uh, before the pandemic, 2019, I heard that there was a high school, there was a high school in, East, in, in um, uh, Bergen, New Jersey, and it was, they, the art teacher and the English teacher had an idea that instead of doing like, you know, uh, Brigadoon or Oklahoma for their high school play, they would do Alien the entire movie. And they built everything from scratch, the alien's uh, suit, the 15-foot the space jockey, the space suits, the chestburster, everything. And they thought they'd just fly under the radar that no one would hear about it, just the parents would come see it. But then, of course, it went viral. So Ridley Scott um, uh, put up some money and they were able to put on a, another performance. And they were in the eye of the media storm. And so I flew to New Jersey, uh, to North Bergen, New Jersey to spend the day talking to the students. So, because I knew they were gonna get a lot of promises from Hollywood and I knew those would all be false probably and would fall flat and their hearts would get broken. And I wanna say, here's how it works. And if you come to LA, I'm happy to, to guide you and you can all be members of my round table wherever you are and so forth. And so I spent the day with them. And then as a surprise, uh, Sigourney Weaver showed up and she hung out with the kids and she introduced the play and it was just wonderful. I actually posted the entire play on Mr. Sci-Fi oh, and it's okay. great when the chestburster comes out and there's blood everywhere. It was wonderful. And, and I said to them, I said to the kids, this is Hollywood. What you're doing right here is Hollywood. Hollywood is 
wherever you're creating something that has meaning, something that you gave it your really best effort. And, uh, and it was a, I'm so glad I went. It was a wonderful experience. That's great. I'll have to check it out. Yeah. Maybe we'll put a link below this video. It. <laughs> it's really fun. Awesome. Well, people can watch, you know, the first hour of Space Command. They can watch the bonus episode. They can watch that. They can watch the, my uh, Sulu Star Trek episode, all on Mr. Sci-Fi. Sure. It's and you huge... and Elaine. Yeah. 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 Talking. It's, just, it's super fun. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. It's enjoyable. And then we get to see your dogs, too. Well, I, I love the fact I get to have my own network. I mean, mm -hmm. I wasn't planning that. I just had lunch with Glenn Mazzara who was a friend of mine who was the showrunner on Walking Dead and we were having lunch and he said, you know, you know so much about science fiction, you should have your own YouTube channel. And I thought, good idea. And so, so I called it Mr. Sci-Fi and just started it up. I didn't do anything really to promote it. Now, as I said, we've had millions of hits and uh, closing in on 100,000 subscribers and it was just like, great. Because I can, I can do something short or something that takes a lot more effort. But, um, you know, it's, it's, it's really fun because I'm, I'm so so enthusiastic about science fiction. I've loved it since I was a kid. And Sulu, why should we care about Sulu? Well, when I was a kid watching Star Trek, Sulu was my favorite character. And because George Takei was just so great and he was so smart and so competent and loyal and honorable and just wonderful. And he never got the great Sulu episode. And I then found out that there were a group of fans in upstate New York making their own Star Trek episodes. And Walter Koenig, who played Chekhov, was flying up there to um, make an episode about his character. And Dorothy Fontana, who story edited the original Star Trek, had written that script. So I con And my friend Michael Reeves, back when they were going to bring Star Trek back as a series in the 70s, came up with this great Sulu story. And so I contacted the guys in upstate New York and I said, listen, Michael and I both wrote for Star Trek The Next Generation. And Michael's an Emmy winner. Uh, would you be interested in doing this episode? And they said, sure. And I said, but I want to direct it. And they said, fine. And, um, and so then I went to George and I, I typed up the outline of what the story was going to be. And I said, uh, look, you, you never got the great Sulu episode you, de you deserved. And uh, I said, this is it. And so he said, I'm in. And I, Michael and I wrote the script and it took me six months to prep. And uh, it took a solid year. We shot, we shot it in a matter of two weeks. And then it was a solid year of editing and visual effects. Had 700 visual effects shots. And when we were shooting, I said to George, next year, you and I will be on in Japan speaking to the World Science Fiction Convention and screening this episode, after which we'll answer questions and you'll be answering in Japanese because he's fluent in Japanese. And I'll be answering in English. And I said, a year after that, we'll be nominated for the Hugo, which is the top award in science fiction. And all of that happened. Oh, wow. And uh, so because it was, I'm, I'm proud, I'm pr very, very proud of that episode. And it's every, every, I gave every bit of everything I knew how to do in that, to write and direct and, and exactly produce that. And my contract was that no one could touch a frame of it. I had total um, directorial say. And so it's exactly what I want it to be. And as I say, we cast Christina Moses and she's, Phenomenal. Every take was just gorgeous, and I'm and I've worked with her since. She's in Space Command now, as well as being in a million little things on ABC. Um, but she uh, and she'll be in Magic Time and, and some of the other projects we're doing. So um, it's fun. You build an ensemble of friends who uh, who you love to work with. How much of what you write is trying to be original versus trying to give the audience what they want? Well, I'm pleased when the audience gets value from what I do, but that's not why I'm doing it. I'm doing it because I have something I want to say, something I've experienced or something I've observed that's meaningful to me. And uh, I, it's so, 
And, and there's just so many wonderful pieces. I mean, the lovely part about what I do, because of it's science fiction, I get to create a universe. And that's the thing that science fiction brings that other genres don't tend to. If, if you see a story set in the modern day, it's just about those people. It's about that story. But if you tell a really good science fiction story, the universe is a separate character in a way. Like, for instance, Blade Runner, you can do stories in the Blade Runner universe. You can do stories in the Star Wars universe or Star Trek universe. And that's extremely beguiling. And I love that. And it allows you also to work with um, visual design. And because I was a painting, sculpture, and graphic arts major, I have a very strong visual sense. And I also know the history of science fiction design. I mean, I think it's incredibly cool and unexpected that we have big silver spaceships now thanks, thanks to Elon Musk. They look exactly like the ones I saw in When Worlds Collide or on the book, book covers from my childhood. And that's just a thrill. Um, I love bringing a science fiction reality to the screen. It's, um, it just used so, so many of my, of my skills and enthusiasms. Do you think you'll be going up to space in one of the various uh, carriers? <laughs> okay. We'll see what happens. It's There's not, a few to choose from. It's not something that, that I'm <laughs> eager to do, but it's not something I would mind doing either. Uh, but I do know personally know astronauts and uh, scientists at NASA and JPL and all of that stuff's really exciting. So uh, there's a member of our roundtable who's a science fiction writer and his day job is he drives the Mars rover. <laughs> oh, that's a cool job. And he has two watches. One is on Earth time and one is on Mars time. Nice. Which is just super cool. Yeah. Sorry I'm late. I was, you know. <laughs> yeah, uh, exactly. I need a crater. Oh, wait. Yeah, no. <laughs> yeah wrong watch. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, okay. very fun. How do you build a character from scratch? Well, it can come from a lot of places. Uh, I I, what I do is I keep a list of people that I've known in my life and, and actors that I love, all of whom are very distinctive and have different ways of talking. And every time I write a script, I cast it with people who are very distinctive in my mind. In some cases, it's actors I'm going to um, be working with. So for Doug Jones and Bob Picardo and Mira Furlan um, and Bill Mooney, I wrote those roles for them for Space Command. Um, but in some cases, it might be an actor that I'm not going to get. Like, for instance, I wrote a script called Fugitive Space, and the template I used for the lead was Ed Harris in The Abyss because it was a great character and a great voice. I could see him very clearly in my mind. So I knew that Ed Harris wasn't going to play that role. He's too old for that role now, for one thing, but, but it made the character very real, very alive to me. And um, so you just make sure that nobody is just flat. Nobody's just there for exposition. Um, you never, I don't tend to describe the physicality of a character because often you might have something in mind, but there might be an actor who doesn't look a thing like that who's great, and you don't want to limit it. And, um, and I also very much want diversity in my, in my cast, Asian, black, different countries, as more the better. You know, and uh, so that's also part of, the, part of the design. I cast a lot of actors uh, from restaurants I eat at. The waiters are all, the waiters and waitresses are all actors and actresses. And I'll, if I find someone who's good or who intrigues me, I'll say, send me your reel and I'll, I'll cast them. Yeah, I've done that a lot. That's great. I like that. Yeah. And also, too, you can see how on they are. Yes. There's a restaurant called Granville in the Valley. And there was a young actor who looked exactly like he could be the son of Ethan McDowell, who plays Jack Kemmer, the lead in Space Command. And he was an actor. And I, uh, and I cast him. He's in, he's in uh, the bonus episode. And he's great. He does a great job. So I'm gonna, he'll be in more episodes coming up. What mistakes do new writers make in writing characters? 
the mis new writers make a lot of mistakes in writing characters. Usually the biggest mistake is they're just flat. They all sound alike and they just are saying exactly what they're thinking. In real life, people don't say what they're thinking generally. Um, they might say what they're thinking directly in an argument, but often not, not even then. Um, so you want to think about how people really talk. And also remember that a script is not a representation of real life. It's like a 120 page haiku. And it's, so it's, it's, an, it's an illusion of reality, but it isn't reality. And so often the lines have to be a lot briefer and a lot punchier. Um, but I always like to have characters who talk differently from each other, who are very different in their outlooks, their worldview. Um, also, a mistake many writers make, not just in the beginning of the career, their careers, but throughout, is that it's about the plot and the characters are just serving the plot. And that's not, not a good idea. You want the plot to be servicing the characters. In other words, for instance, Aliens has a wonderful plot, but Ripley is at the core. She's the heart of that movie. And if that movie were about people you didn't care about, that, and that movie also, by the way, introduces a wide variety of characters incredibly well. So if you look at when they all wake up from the sleep pods and you see you meet all of those characters, they're very different from each other and they have their own take and they're very, you get who they are really quickly and there's a lot of them. And so studying that, just saying, okay, how did that work? And uh, it works like a charm. It's great. It's great. And if, you said so, so because Ripley was not a flat character, no, but if, if some things had been slightly... Well, if, if she were a flat character, you wouldn't care about that movie. It would just, how many movies are based on aliens where they're they like big science fiction movies? And because the characters are forgettable, the movie is forgettable. You, you, don't, you, you don't love movies because of the plots generally, you love movies because of the characters. And, uh, you know, and, and I think a lot of films are too clever for their own good because they're, they're just twisting and turning the plot in violation of the character and you never want to do that because the moment the audience distances from the character, you've lost them. And, uh, and you know, I don't, I don't like puzzle boxes uh, as, a, as a structure. I like, I mean, you can have mystery, you can have revelations, all of that, that's fine. But I like to have characters who don't, you don't lose the characters because of what the plot is doing. You know, and uh, so that's, yeah. And you don't throw them away either. You, you respect your characters. That doesn't mean they can't die, they can. But, uh, but you give what they do meaning. You know, you never just, you know, you never treat anyone as disposable, in, in my opinion. And so with the dialogue, knowing that it's going to be distinct for each character, mm. you think a lot of new writers start out thinking, okay, I'm going to do sort of an Aaron Sorkin-esque, sort of, you it's, know, very talky, it's witty. A pretty, it's a, well, also, that's another mistake that beginning writers make, which is they're, 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 they're talking, 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 and talking, like get in and get out, you know, it's like make your point and then on to the next scene. Don't belabor it. You know, so they, they're, they're much too wordy. And also, yeah, imitating Quentin Tarantino, imitating Aaron Sorkin, try not to. You know, uh, I, I mean, uh, you know, Serling said when he started out, he, everything he wrote was bad Hemingway. You know, he said everything began, it was hot. You know, so, <laughs> you know, and, and that's forgivable in young people. But again, you have to find your own voice. You have to find, and the way to find your own voice is, what do I care about? What do I know about? What do I alone know? What, you know, and that it doesn't mean you can't write things that are different from what you've actually lived, but what do you know about and what do you care about and what gets you riled up and what's, where do you live emotionally? 
and find and and you know and then when and, and if you hear someone say something just in their your your day, I always carry a little notepad with me and I jot things down. Because if someone says a line that's like, wow, that's great. You know, it's like I'll, you know, I'll utilize that, you know, and uh, and try not to rip off dialogue from other movies because God, it's so so many people rip off lines from aliens. And it's like, oh please don't. And uh, you know, so that's part of it. Um, and 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 don't bore. If, if something's boring to you on the page, it'll be boring to everybody. So keep working on it until it works. <laughs> and sometimes a scene doesn't work, and the only way to make it work is to get rid of it. And so be willing to do that. Um, it's funny. I was giving notes to someone uh, last week, and they were saying, "Well, does this character work?" I read their script and gave them notes, and it was a script that had been in development at big companies. And uh, he said, "Does this character work?" I said, "No, lose them. They don't work." And I said, and he was saying, well, what about this sequence? I said, no, it doesn't work. And I said, here's what your story is about emotionally. It's about a father and a son, and the son doesn't think his father loved him, but in reality, his father did love him and shielded him and sacrificed his own life, but the son doesn't know that. And ultimately, our, our, the son is willing to do, that, to do that for his own daughter, but the father's spirit saves them. You know, the father comes back as a spirit. It's a fantasy film. And and once I said, this is what your plot is, and everything else is distraction. And so don't keep pulling it in this direction, pulling it in that direction, follow the emotional line. And uh, because that'll work. And so then I just kind of took it, you know, helped it along. And, and again, they don't, do they have to do my version of their film? No, but they have to do a version that works. And, and if that, if my version helps them find their, their path, great. And uh, because many films don't know what they're trying to say, or they have nothing to say, you know. Mo you know what? What are most films about? Most films are about two hours. <laughs> you, know, so, you know, it's like know what you're trying to say, and 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 then remove the stuff that doesn't say that. What's your favorite piece of dialogue that you overheard personally that you jotted in your little notebook? Uh, yeah, gosh, um, you know, it's. Uh, I don't remember, and sorry about that. It's like, you know, I, I remember one of my favorite lines that I ever wrote. It's a terrible line. It's terrible. They're in Fugitive Space, which is about um, a future where we trade our worst prisoners with alien prisoners. Uh, they, uh, they breathe methane. We breathe oxygen. They're, the prison that's holding the humans is on a methane world, so we can't escape. They can't escape our prison here on Earth because it's oxygen. They don't breathe oxygen. And it's about a um, prison break that erupts at a... Um, at the handoff point, a space station between the two races. And, and the aliens are like eight foot tall jelly, vertical jellyfish. They communicate via chromatophores. Really fun. And, um, and we're going to be doing that as a TV show. But, the, uh, but I had this guard who was like really sadistic. And at the end, he saves one of our characters and he dies. And when he dies, he says, I don't know why I did that. And, and the, his boss, the prison, the, the head of the, the guard says, he was a prick, but he had balls. <laughs> it's such a stupid line but it's like oh, that's pretty good that's funny yeah and, you know and again you know you but again it has to be that character who would say that line you know and uh i think he was a dick but he had balls whatever it is you know it's, 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 you know but again the reason that line i like that line is because this is a script that has rougher talking characters you'd never have that line in space command for instance which is much more family show but fugitive space has very rough language because it's convicts and um but it's about the industrial military prison complex because ultimately 
two prisoners. One is a woman helicopter pilot who's been framed for a wartime massacre, and the other is a former cop who um, killed his fellow officers because they were going to murder a family. He was a dirty cop, and that was the line he could not cross. But he killed them with premeditation, the, his brother officers, and so he's a trustee now in the prison, but a convict. But they find out that the Earth government has struck a deal with the aliens. The aliens are fighting a war that they're losing, and so Earth has struck a deal with them that they can invade Earth, empty out all the ghettos, and use all the poor people to fight in their war basically as slave soldiers. Mm -hmm. And so our heroes have to get back to Earth and warn everybody and, and, and build a counterinsurgency. So, so it's about something meaningful to me, uh, which is the, the people, the underclass, the people who anything can be done to them because they don't quote unquote count. And I write about that thematically a lot, the people that people need to be given respect, people need to be seen as human and as, as equal to us in every way. And um, so, so it's going to be a very interesting show, but um, but I created the characters who speak a certain way, so that line works in that in that context. But the hero doesn't say that. I just have this tough prison head, you know, the boss of the prison guard, sort of a Charles Durning. I use Charles Durning as a model for that guy, and even though Charles Durning is an older actor who passed away, but he's very vivid in my head, so that allows me to write him. So eh, there you go. But I've written other lines, you know. But uh, you know, it 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 depends, you know, on any given day. How does a screenwriter know that what they've written is good? Writers are often misled in their own opinions of their work. They think the script is great when it's really not. You need response from others and you need to really listen and not defend your work. Now when you work in a mass medium and you hear back from your fans or the show is a success, then you know. Um, and also as you get more and more um, polished in your craft, you often know. You know when something's at least competent. You know when you know, you know what, what will work. Uh, but the funny thing is I often write scripts and Elaine is my, uh, the person I get notes from, and she often says, this needs to be better. This needs to go deeper. And it's like, oh, okay, 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 okay. You know, it's like, and, and that's good. That's good because if something doesn't have the depth or the, or the emotional line, I need to know that. Um, and, and, and frankly, I wrote, a, I wrote one of the two-hour scripts of Space Command and we could absolutely shoot that draft. We absolutely could. And it would more or less work, but it's not good enough. So we're going to scrap that entire draft and, and start over again. And I've actually already done that. And, um, and there's characters we won't see that they're in there. And those characters work. But the, the, but the story as a whole isn't as good as we can make it. So we're going to go back to the drawing board. And that's fine. It's harder work, but, but eventually I may publish, you know, the Lost Worlds of Space Command and include that script so people can see where it started because it's an entertaining read. But, um, you know, I, 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 I need people in my life who tell me if something's working or not. But at some point you draw the line and you say, okay, we're, we're, we're rocking and rolling. We're not going to... Because you can, you can endlessly rewrite. And you, there's a point where that's, again, where television is good. If they're shooting on Monday, you got to... At some point you got to say, well, you know, we're done. And, and, you know, roll camera. So, but you make it as good as you can. But then remember that when you're the writer, producer, director, you, the editing phase is the final draft of the script. So in fact, with Space Command, we're editing, um, we're finishing the first, the second uh, episode with the visual, visual effects and everything. And I realized there was one scene that we needed to add. So we went back to the dailies, we called our actors, we got some ADR lines. We put together a scene that we never shot. 
And there it is, you know, and we'll have a visual effects shot of this um, ship landing and planting a, a part of a wrecked ship to use as an explosive on an, the big alien ship and it'll work. It'll, and no one will know that we never shot that scene. <laughs> so it's, I love the, so it's prestidigitation magic, you know, so it's fun. What about the reverse though? What if someone says, this is horrible and I know this is crap and mm -hmm. someone else reads it and they're not, there's no agenda for this person and they go, actually, this is really good. No, yeah. no, no, this is terrible, this yeah. is terrible. If the check clears, if the check clears. I mean, if, if someone wants to buy a script of yours, it doesn't matter what you think of it, let them buy it, you know? Uh, it's, but, but on the other hand, let's say you've written something and you think it's crap right? and they love it. Or someone loves it and encourages you. Let's the say. way you know if something, if a note is correct is that everyone is saying the same thing. So in other words, if five people read it and they all say, you know, I just hated when he killed the dog, then you better rewrite that, you know? But on the other hand, if one person loves it and you don't like it, well, they don't have to, I mean, it's like, then you can say, well, let me, let me see if there's something of value here, but don't, don't be slavish to their opinion. They could easily be wrong, you know? So if they love it, that's fine. If they're going to buy it, let them. But but don't, I mean, you might reread your script just with a mind toward what maybe they're valuing, but don't, don't trust it as holy writ because they're probably wrong. And, uh, you know, so, but at the, you know, that's, you know, but that's very rare that someone says something that you think it doesn't work and other people say it does. That's very rare. That's what I was wondering. Okay, you know, so it's, yeah, usually you think it's great and other people think it sucks. That's you what know? I was and wondering. So that's okay. where you need to, yeah. Um, <laughs> What but, a reality check, how, yeah. how, how delusional yeah. are writers. Yeah, but, but, but there's always going to be people who aren't on your wavelength. So for instance, if I'm doing science fiction and someone doesn't cue into what I'm doing because they're not a science fiction fan, there's no right or wrong to that. It's just they are not, their head doesn't live where my head lives, you know, and that's fine, but they're not going to be my audience. They're not, I don't need to convince them. I don't need to rewrite. You know, you have to be very careful of bad notes, notes that wreck your script. And you don't, you, that's where you really want to make sure that the people who are giving you notes understand what you're trying to do and make, can make it better, but not throw it out. And like, if they say put a bank robbery in it when it's, you know, a love story or something, it's like, what? You know, and that happens a lot. So I, I, that's what, one reason why I'm not that big a fan of writing groups unless it's professional writers because you can just writers groups. That's why, I'm, for instance, my round table is not a writers group because I don't want people giving each other notes and tearing each other apart and falling into cat fights and gunfire and whatever, you know, it's like, no, it's like, you know, professional writers generally will know if something's working or not. They'll just be able to say, well, okay, here's this. Um, another thing that's fun is even in drama, it's good to have comedy, humor, jokes, but not at the expense of character or plot. So if you, for instance, if you look at Aliens, Bill Paxton is the one who's given all the jokes, basically, but, and they all land, but that's because that's a part of his personality. It doesn't take away from the fact they're afraid, that, that, that there's monsters coming after them. That is never, he's never laughing at that. He's nervous and his coping mechanism is to make jokes. And so that's, and he's great. Bill Paxton's just great in that movie, you know, so. But, uh, but yeah, I mean, I, a lot of people make mistakes. You just have to be willing to grow and to learn. You just have to be willing to hear people but not be slavish to them. You have to decide that no matter what, you're not gonna quit. And that doesn't mean you make crap. It means that whatever it takes 
you're going to learn what you need to learn. You're going to partner with who you need to partner with. And no matter what the world does, you're going to get to the finish line. That's all it is. If you take responsibility and if you take power, and if you decide that the one person who will be responsible for your success is you, then, then, then you can't be stopped. There's no way to stop you. It's a, it's, you're on your path. Um, and it's great. It's a great thing to wake up with the knowledge that you're going to create something wonderful and the world will see it. And you're not a puppet dancing to someone else's strings, you know? You're not, you're not, uh, you're not enthralled to anyone other than your creative vision. You know, it's, 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 a, it's a great feeling. You know, I think uh, the fact that, I mean, I came out of the subway in London, the tube uh, before the pandemic, and I was going to a, a pitch meeting with the BBC, Elaine and I, and someone on the street said, Space Command, Mr. Sci-Fi. Great, that's so great. Oh, wow. And I was walking my dogs uh, recently, and there was this Russian family, we live in a Russian neighborhood, Russian family, uh, walking across the street, sort of laterally, these, these refrigerator-shaped people. And the man saw me with my dogs, he said, Mr. Sci-Fi, I love your commentaries, particularly Star Trek Discovery. Thank you. <laughs> I mean, it's wonderful. I mean, how could you not love that life? You know, it's, it's, it's great. So yeah, so it's um, the one thing that makes it all worthwhile is that when you do it right, when you've written a script and it's gotten made and it's gotten out to the world and what you wanted to say is what you said and people really valued it, it stands the test of time. It lasts decade after decade, maybe hundreds of years. And it's, you know that you've done something worth doing. It's, it's a great feeling, you know? Um, you're, you're, not, you're not just kind of punching a time clock. And the lovely part is that you can work a day job and still do your art, or you can make a living from your art. Either path is, is honorable. And either path gets your, gets your work out to the world, and that's what really matters.